0: I am willing to wager £20,000 that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't I accept. accept, I accept. train leaves for Dover
1: this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to Eighty Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you as ever by three history and geography nerds in an Internet Power Balloon. This podcast, as ever, is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me today are Mark Boylan, Syria in the UK and Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Paraguay, a small South American nation sometimes referred to as the heart of South America, bordered by Argentina to the south and southwest, Brazil to the east and northeast, and Bolivia to the northwest. As one of only two landlocked countries in South America, the other being Bolivia, Paraguay was home to a number of native Indian groups, most prominently the Guarani, before being colonized by Spanish conquistadors in the early 1500s. During the 17th century, Paraguay became home to a large number of Jesuit missions where the native Guarani people were settled and converted to Christianity. Following independence from Spain in the early 19th century, the country was involved in a number of regional conflicts and subject to the whims of numerous dictatorial governments. This period culminated in the disastrous Paraguayan War, which began in 1864 and resulted in the country losing up to half of its pre-war population and up to a third of its territory. Since colonization, Guarani culture, language and traditions have remained integral to the country's national identity, and the majority of modern-day Paraguayans are Mestizo, descending from a mix of settlers and Guarani. The country has around 7 million inhabitants today and has a land area of around 400,000 square kilometers or 150,000 square miles, comparable in size to Norway and slightly smaller than the US state of California. Despite a history of poverty and political repression, Paraguay often ranks as the world's happiest place based on global polling data. Really? Mm. Apparently so. Yep,
1: yeah. she says so. Mm-hmm. Just on the landlocked thing, this is the only country that in South America that's never had a coast. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, Bolivia. It's Bolivia, did? right? Bolivia, yeah, Bolivia is the other did one. one. Did, did once, and mm-hmm. they're still a bit sore about it, apparently. Yep. And uh, I think now they access the sea through the River Paraguay or at least uh, yeah they least have the deal.
0: they have uh, i believe quite a strong navy and they they have a lot of you know very prominent rivers uh yeah. you know that border and run through the country so a lot of rivers they have a lot of you know maritime tradition it's just that uh they don't have a coast so yep. the,
2: the boats are small yeah
0: yeah so should we kick off by talking a little bit about something that we're looking forward to discussing in this episode how about you go first joe
1: Something I found really surprising when reading about this is how there are significant settlements in the Chaco region, uh, the kind of less populous western part of Paraguay, uh, in which the primary spoken language is is a form of low German. And um, Hmm. that's not what you'd expect in a Latin American country, which has retained a lot of indigenous language.
2: Are we talking people who, uh, you know, turned up in Paraguay in, in the winter months of 1945? Or are we talking people who have no, no, naturally come there over the previous decades? <laughs> no, I mean, the
1: people arrived there earlier. Um, okay. the, 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 the After 45, people probably have spoken uh, Hochdeutsch, rather than uh, Plutdeutsch. You're okay. going get to get
2: pass Paraguay, Paraguayan Germans. <laughs> get my eye I'm not you. saying that what there's saying?
1: no Nazis went there, uh, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... Much more wholesome um, German-speaking communities. Cool.
2: Got my buddy Steve Gutenberg on the case.
0: Mark, what about you?
2: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I have a few dictators in some of my sections. Uh, so, a bit spoiled for choice. But I think there's one particular <laughs> particular policy which is maybe the first example I've ever seen of mm. of somebody perhaps being too progressive. Uh, uh, yeah. A uh,
0: dictator d- being yeah. too progressive. Interesting.
2: <laughs> being. Inarguably too progressive. Uh, yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about um, a 1986 British period drama film, uh, which is based on some of the events in one of my sections. So, okay. Um, okay. Which uh, stars Robert De Niro. Um, so. Oh right. Yeah. And apparently won a won a lot of awards. So. Uh, huh. Yeah, you'll have to stay tuned to find out what that what that's all about. Joe, do you want to kick us off with some early history?
1: I do. Um, so, firstly, I would just like to kick off by saying I would really recommend re-listening to our Uruguay episode. Uh, oh yes, do your homework. Oh yeah. Similar things happening. Uh, Paraguay, it and Uruguay near each other. The, yep. the Guay are both remnants of the of names in the in Guarani languages. Um, yeah. E meaning water. So, you know, if you haven't listened to that, maybe do. There'll be a lot of... Um, There'll lot be a of lot echoes. of crossover,
0: yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I, I listened to it, I don't know if you guys did, I listened to it in the in the lead up to us recording this episode, and it's only <laughs> like an hour and 20 minutes long. So, I mean, I figure we can probably beat that this time, right?
2: <laughs> beat it by doing it much, much longer, right? Because you definitely <laughs> can't beat it by doing it any shorter. Yeah. So...
0: Mm.
1: Uh, To set the geographic scene for Paraguay, it's made up of two main parts, and I'm obviously oversimplifying a large country. But about a third of the country is between the Parana River, which flows into the sea in the Uruguay. We we mentioned that before. Uh, And it is indeed, I think, where those terrifying fish get their name. Hmm. Um, And it, it forms the border with Argentina and Brazil, the Parana River. Okay. So you've got the Paraná River on the the kind of the east of the country, and then the Paraguay River flows through the country, and that's been variously translated as the river that gives birth to the sea, in Guarani, or alternatively named after after the Payagua people, country, who were fierce water? warriors who plied the river in canoes, who were at war with the Guarani, and so this was the this could have been the Payaguaí, the the river of the terrifying warrior people that we're scared of so this this region between the parana and the the paraguay is kind of characterized by rolling hills uplands forests and alluvial plains lots of Ooh. kind of flooding uh, in a way that's good for fertility and so on yeah. uh, and it's it's i think always been the more populous part of the the country hmm. uh, it's now like 95% of the population live in this eastern third um, nowadays, so that's kind of what you're dealing with there um, and then west of the, the Paraguay River is about two thirds of the country, this kind of broad, flat lowland plain um, called the Gran Chaco, well rather this is part of a bigger region spanning Bolivia, Argentina, bits of Brazil called the Gran Chaco or Chaco Plains and it's kind of the space between the Paraguay River and the Andes so it's oh, wow. um, not
2: much a going on there. A lot of space.
1: So I, I've never met anyone who's been to Paraguay, but I, I've spoken to someone who, who's been in the neighbouring parts of Argentina, both on the the really dry, uh, semi-arid end of things near Bolivia, yeah. and also um, the Iguazu Falls on kind of the east side of the country. So I've got a bit of a sense of the the climate, and it's quite different. You know, you get this kind of almost rainforesty space on one side, and then very dry plains on the other side so yeah the 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 grand shark was described as semi-arid uh maybe getting semi-humid something during the rainy Mm. season Uh and there's um lots of forests and and uh and all that kind of thing i mean if you look if you look at a map you can
0: like a modern day map you can see like like eight out of ten settlements like major settlements are all like in the eastern half of the country so there's not a lot going on in the western half I well I mean say, there's but... there's
1: a lot of diversity sure. in terms of biodiversity yeah. and also in terms of people. Like there were many, mm. many, many different tribes in the Grand Chaco, where the eastern part of the country was much more, you know, it was largely Guarani and Tupi speaking people. And then in the West you've got, you know, dozens of different language groups and ethnic groups uh, finding their own niche in this. Diff- more difficult terrain mm. and it would eventually lend itself to sort of a plains Indian type culture like not unlike what you get in, in North America when, when the horse is introduced a lot of people adopt that kind of um, hunting on off, horseback kind of lifestyle later Okay. Um, so yeah it, to me it feels kind of wild westy um, but I'm oversimplifying Chaco comes from a Quechua word which is a, a, an Andean language meaning hunting grounds so that talks about the biodiversity that's pretty clear so. yeah so for thousands of years, Paraguay was home to many different ethnic and language groups, warring with each other, trading with each other, doing what groups of people do, but importantly, not writing things down, so we don't know a huge amount of detail. Thank you. Um, we've met Guarani people before uh, in Uruguay, yep. but the, that culture is almost completely extinct there, whereas in Paraguay, the story couldn't be any more different. Up to 90% of the population nowadays still speak and understand an indigenous American language. Mm-hmm. Uh which you wow. chiefly you've got a Guarani, the kind of standardized Guarani that's now spoken, which is unique in Latin America.
0: I think actually um, I i I'm, I might talk about this in my section as well, but I, th- I think I read somewhere that it's the most hom- homogenous country in South America because it's basically all mixed race, which is Yes. Which is yes. fantastic. So only
1: about one point seven percent of the current population are are indigenous. Yeah. But seventy five percent are of mixed uh Amerindian European descent. Yeah. Um, which is yeah, as you say, the the most homogenous. There isn't that sort of class structure you get in some other Latin American countries where yeah. there's like the almost never integrated Spanish descended people and the different indigenous groups. Yeah. So you know,
0: um and you would think when you hear homogenous, you would go, "Oh God, this doesn't sound great." Like it's, you know, yeah. Well,
1: Uruguay is quite homogenous, mm, but in in, in, in a very different very way.
0: Few, but yeah, um, being homogenous different. in the way that everybody is part of one melting pot is is, is mm. pretty cool. So
1: uh, definitely unique yeah. um, in in the region. And so th- that said, though, despite there being still this strong footprint of of uh, an indigenous culture. The story of the indigenous peoples of Paraguay is very poorly understood before the Spanish turned up. Um, so there's almost no archaeology of the region of anywhere earlier than the, the the Jesuit Guarani missions that of the 17th century that Luke is no doubt going to oh, yeah. discuss at length. Uh, so they've been excavated, and they're you know Paraguay isn't big on tourism; it's a poorly developed tourism industry. But if you're going to visit something, it's probably the Jesus or the Trinidad Reductions. Uh, which have been excavated and and you know mm. well understood they're now world and, heritage sites right yes mm. and mm. I, again i i i've seen photos and and talked to someone who's visited the similar reducciones in on the argentinian side and they're very impressive buildings this kind of red brick buildings standing out of the 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 greenery of the forest um but very little archaeology of the pre-columbian times which is kind of remarkable to be honest but It's then not a very wealthy country. It doesn't have the Inca history or anything like that. So maybe that's why. Um, So, yeah, much of what went before is a mystery. Things are so sparse, so sparse, in fact, that um, searching Paraguay archaeology on Google is a very dangerous pursuit. (laughs) Uh, You end up down interesting rabbit holes of, of pseudoscience um, okay. claiming that Danish Vikings came here and set up forts in the Middle Ages, uh, oh. obviously, because there's there's some mountain that vaguely resembles something in a Danish legend. There seems to be very little basis for these claims, of course, as with a lot of these kind of American histories, some Europeans did it, all, all the magic stuff was done by white people. Mm. That oh, of. yeah. But one tantalizing aspect of all this... Is that the one of the first Spaniards to visit Paraguay, and I think Luke, you're going to tell us about uh, Alejo Garcia. Mm-hmm, I am. Um, he was told of a, a white king in the west who had untold riches, and he was described as having a blonde beard and you know his own kingdom and so on. And that that was what Garcia was quite interested in. Um, and you know that that's not what we what he found uh so the white king seems a really unlikely to have actually been a mysterious westerner uh despite what the internet wants to believe but that's about you know there was some kind of legend as much as the aztecs had a legend of you know white visitors from the sea that you know i i wouldn't i would say it's much more likely that th- these are legends that um that europeans are obsessed with rather than then some, some kind of like Vikings, in twenty-three Paraguay.
2: and Me report gone terribly, terribly awry. <laughs> so some Danish guy's got a single red dot in Paraguay. So you know what? Uh, I've done my research. Uh, YouTube, YouTube, YouTube.
1: Anyway, uh, there were reports in two thousand nine in uh, Jasukavenda Venda of the discovery of human habitation dating back about five thousand years. So that's the earliest uh, evidence of, of humanity in. Paraguay and, and that kind of tallies with the anthropologist theories that you know maybe six thousand years ago was when people started entering the region. Okay. There's also this footprint style rock art was observed in in Jesucavenda. Um, so, so
2: is it like footprints on a rock? Is that? Is yeah, that well, that I mean, I
1: think footprint
2: rock art. So I think like. um Are they just hitting with their foot until so, it Are yeah. they drawing around their foot? Uh, I didn't really follow. <laughs> so it's just it footprint seems to be style. A,
1: a style of rock art that's known in the surrounding regions. Fair enough. Um, So, what we do know, despite too much uh, hard evidence, is that in the Gran Chaco region, there were lots of groups, as I said, including the Payagua, who who we mentioned, uh, various Guaycuru groups, uh, the Mbaya, the Abipon, Mokobi, and Chiriguango, and the Ishir or Chamacoco people. So, these were various different interrelated and unrelated groups. Uh, None of whom really welcomed European expansion. And there's a correlation between (laughs) that and the relative population uh, these days, unfortunately. Mm. Um, But there were probably hundreds of thousands of people in this region uh, pre-conquistadors. Difficult to really estimate accurately, but that's what they reckon. Uh, I found a quote from the 1540s by the the governor of Paraguay, Alvar Nunez Cabeta de Vaca. I don't know if anyone's speaking about him later, but he described some of the um, the Guaycuru people as uh, great warriors and valiant men who live on venison, butter, honey, fish, and wild boar, which nice. I think sounds like a good diet. Mm, all right? Yeah. Uh, they go daily to the chase for it is their only occupation. They are nimble and quick, so long winded that they tire out the deer and catch them with their hands. They are kind to their wives. They are much feared by all the other tribes. They never remained more than two days in one place, but quickly removed their houses made of matting. So that's, you know, a little after contact, but that's how they were being described. Um, the eastern part of the country was, was um, a little more settled, I think. So a lot of nomadism in the west. The eastern parts, they were kind of semi-nomadic um, Guarani speakers for the most part, as well as other related linguistic groups, such as Tupi speakers, the Tape, the, Attila, the Itatini, the Guarajo, and also some Arawak people, but I don't oh, okay. see much more about that. They, 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 there's a lot of Arawak languages in South America, like the whole stretch from like Cuba to here, which right. is kind of remarkable. Hmm. So the, the Guarani were beset on all sides by fierce enemies, um, such as the Payagua people. And this would lead to them actually allying with the Spanish and seeing them as a new political player in the region that could be of benefit to them. Okay. They were reasonably Uh-oh. settled communities where like a couple of villages would share a chief and there was quite a bit of structure to the civilization. Um, and the Mestizo population of today is largely descended from uh, Guarani people who who bought into the, the changed world. Yep. Um, this culture form a backbone of the colonial culture Uh they farmed corn, sweet potato, cassava, and yerba mate, which is that um, famous drink that's almost synonymous with this region. See Uruguay again. Yep. And just fun fun fact that the words petunia, uh, jaguar, piranha, tapioca, and capoeira are all of either Tupi or Guarani origins, this family, mm. this language group. Cool. So, um, yeah, jaguars are quite common in the forests here, I think, or at least were. Guarani had a complex mythology. Uh, of gods and monsters. I haven't done too much reading on it, because if I did, I'd have to go into all the other different groups that I can find a single source on. But there was definitely animistic spirits and origin stories for animals. Um, but a lot, a lot of it was oral tradition and was lost. But some legends do persist. Uh, but you know Who knows how dramatically they've changed from historical versions. But one that seems kind of relevant is that it is believed that uh, Tup'a, with the help of the moon goddess Arasi, Descended to a hill in Paraguay to create the world. And this hill was uh, Venda, that that place where they found the first traces of man in Paraguay uh, in the archaeological record, which is kind of cool. So I think that that archaeology is quite important to the local uh, Guarani culture. Um, And he, he created the world from that hill and the Guarani is the first people. So, you know, perhaps this isn't just the, the, the heart of South America. It could indeed be the heart of the whole world, according to Guarani myth. Mm. Um, but also, equally
2: plausibly, uh, the world was created in a different manner to that. <laughs> it, it is it is slightly gratifying when you see, you know, uh, isolated culture from a long period of time ago uh, is also, you know, self-obsessed like all people. Uh, they yep. <laughs> do fall into the same failings that are just kind of baked into us uh, aren't we the greatest I mean, oh yes that we are isn't, that doesn't
0: yeah, keep exactly to first? Yep.
1: Like most indigenous most names of tribes of indigenous people mean person yeah in that yeah, language yeah. like people aren't that it's just
0: us <laughs> we're the main ones don't <laughs> yep. forget it uh. did you have some uh, music you want to drop in here joe
1: yeah so i, I found um uh some sanapana music so a, a, a sanapana grand chaco uh tribe it seems to be some sort of a, a dance, people dancing around while this this music is being played, in in the video I saw. So. Hey.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna to try to speed through the next section as much as I can about 300 years worth of um, colonialism. So Ooh,
2: um, grit your teeth, listeners.
0: Yeah, uh, Europeans are coming, but not British. Funny enough, or well, no, I don't there's any British in this at all. Uh, I might talk about somebody who's possibly okay. considered British, but you'll see. <laughs> okay, uh, so much of the earliest kind of history of Paraguay comes from. You know, the records of uh, colonization, as you mentioned, Joe, and this begins in around 1516 with the Juan Diaz de Solis failed expedition to the Rio de la Plata. And he's also discover, uh, credited as the discoverer of Uruguay. So we, we touched on him yeah. in that
1: episode. Yeah, they okay. tried to set up Buenos Aires and it didn't go well. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> no, uh, he was Ares. seeking
0: passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. <laughs> Clearly hadn't listened to our Panama episode yet. And uh, <laughs> he was, according to his crew, at least or reports from his crew, killed and eaten by cannibal Indians. Now, mm-hmm. there's some dispute, I think in our Uruguay episode, we said it was a charua. And I think that's what you mentioned as well, Joe, in the notes. But yeah, I've seen conflicting reports about this. So I'm just going to say there are some reports that say it's charua and some reports say it could have been the Guarani. But it's over 500 years <laughs> ago. So who really cares? Yes. Um, and
1: they both they both did cannibalism I, as a kind of a ritualistic okay. I thing. I heard that the like, Charo did,
0: maybe didn't do as much cannibalism, but anyway, it's a oh. tick in our cannibalism box, so I'm going to take yeah. it.
1: <laughs> it's a good power move, though. Don't invade us, we'll eat your heart yeah. is a good power yeah. move. Yeah.
0: So Alejo Garcia, uh, who was possibly one of the crew on that uh, expedition, mm-hmm. who you mentioned earlier, Joe, claimed yeah. to have heard rumors of this white king uh, from a group of okay. uh, friendly native people who had told him there were cities rich with gold in the interior. And so he yeah. he worked to fund an expedition, which launched in 1521, animals Be Damned. And Garcia, who is obviously a bit nervous, based on his previous experiences, uh, spent several sure. years after arriving on the continent outfitting for his trek into the interior. So he, he, hmm. he recruited natives, learned the way of the land, and uh, eventually set out in
1: 1524. I... I... I heard that he'd like... He ended up on some island in Brazil where they spoke Guarani. And so he kind of learned the language in a sort of safe spot. And then... That could have been it. Cool, I can get around now. That might have been it. Yeah.
0: But in any case, he became the first European, at least that we know of, to cross the Chaco. And penetrated the Mm. outer edges of the Inca Empire in present-day Bolivia. Accompanied by over 2,000 Guarani uh, soldiers who he'd he'd kind of recruited to his cause. And he did manage to loot himself a bunch of silver but was very soon after confronted by angry Incans, to whom the silver may have belonged. I'm not entirely sure. Ah, there we go. (laughs) Yeah, so he retreated, but was turned upon and assassinated by his allies, his Indian allies, near San San Pedro on the Paraguay River. But his son was spared and became the first Paraguayan mestizo. So uh, mm. that's where we see the beginning of this tradition of uh, Europeans. So he had
1: a son with a, with a Guarani
2: woman. I think
0: so. I, I think so. Uh, so, that, yeah, because that, as I said, he's, he spent years there uh, yeah. kind of preparing for this, for this uh, trek he, he, to the interior. So it wouldn't surprise
1: me. He's also purported to be the first European to see the Iguazu Falls. There is someone else who's more usually credited with that, but he definitely saw some impressive waterfalls. And Iguazu <laughs> are in the right neighborhood. There's like 275 waterfalls. And okay it's it's spectacular i think there's are they the largest rainbows. waterfalls
0: in the world like largest like concentration yeah not of waterfalls. the tallest, but yeah. like the the most the most waterfalls in one Water. spot yeah so
1: it's okay. just everywhere you look there's more they're waterfalls. very impressive so, it's
2: the wettest waterfalls in the world yeah
1: <laughs> and they also have cool legends that people should look up yeah uh, about you know lost love and gods and
0: yep. monsters then we have uh sebastian cabot who we also mentioned in a couple Mm -hmm. of previous episodes. Do you guys remember where Sebastian Cabot came up before? Newfoundland. Newfoundland and also Uruguay. Uh, He obviously Mm -hmm. appears in the Uruguay episode uh, during this period, but I think his father, John Cabot, was um, the discoverer of Newfoundland? Or he was very... That
1: was it. It was John Cabot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was British, right, or Scottish, or something.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. So I was looking into Sebastian Cabot's background. That's why I said earlier, like I wasn't really sure if the British show up because technically uh, they say that Sebastian Cabot was Venetian, but then he mm. worked for the Spanish, and he also yeah. to- he was also educated in England, and I think claimed to be British on, on a number of occasions. Right. So, so,
1: but like I think John was, he was from Britain somewhere. Yeah. yeah so yeah, he at least has so. some
0: claim to be you Scottish know to be half he might have British. got a passport if you ask yeah. um, a blue passport <laughs> oh. yeah. but he had been directed by the Spanish crown to follow in Magellan's footsteps and to cross the Pacific and he may well have completed a second circ- circumnavigation of the world uh, but when he landed in Brazil he heard about the expedition of Garcia and uh, mm-hmm. the silver that he'd, he'd almost uh, won himself and said oh I'm, uh, I want me some of that so he basically abandoned his mission and sailed to the mouth of the Rio de la Plata and his crew were not entirely happy three of his senior officers apparently rose up against him and he dealt with them by marooning them on uh, Santa Carina Island off Brazil where uh, to quote the source that I read they are believed to have died <laughs> so
2: right. okay well yep. they definitely are dead are dead, dead now yeah. yes
0: <laughs> so uh, he was a Old Testament justice kind of guy um <laughs> So, yeah, he and his men, his remaining men, sailed up the Ria Parana for around 900 kilometers and traded for some silver, which the natives told him had come from the west, which is Mm -hmm. exactly what he was hoping to hear. But he turned around and sailed back to the coast, believing that he'd found the route to the riches of Peru. Cabot then renamed the river the Ria de la Plata. So that's where that name comes from, the River of Silver. Ah,
1: I I heard that the the silver they sold him was actually from Garcia's you know, murdered body. It could have been. Yeah, it could have. It, it could, uh, that, it could well have been. like the whole name of the, this region, like the argent in Argentina, and the 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 whole mm. region is called like the Rio de la Plata mm. region uh, around Uruguay and Paraguay and Argentina, it may just be named after some war. But like, there's no silver here at all. Yeah. Any silver that might turn up in the region has been has come from the Incas. Yeah. A long, long way away, so it's a complete misnomer. It is, but. You know, it wouldn't be the first time a place is called that.
2: Bit bitter for your place to be named after a material that is noted for being second best to another <laughs> material. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's fair enough. But anyway, this this rumor kind of grows legs, and so Charles V of Spain uh, hears of his discoveries, Cabot's discoveries, and sends another expedition under a guy called Don Pedro de Mendoza. Uh, Mendoza is a, a bit of a divisive character. Uh, he, he apparently had pressed to be granted the rights to explore South America and establish colonies at his own expense for a number of years. Uh, so he he was mm. convinced of this myth of silver. And he was eventually granted 2,000 men, 13 ships, and a host of supplies and told that he should transport uh, at least 1,000 colonists within two years and was essentially given free reign over the lands that he conquered. So he set out in 1534 and very soon after proved to be an ineffective leader, certainly of colonists. (laughs) A storm uh, early on scattered many of his ships before they reached the South American mainland, and his second-in-command was assassinated mysteriously after being accused of disloyalty. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) uh, he was also riddled with syphilis uh, when he arrived. So, (laughs) um, yeah, he established a fort at what would later become Buenos Aires, and in his early forays into the continent, he managed to turn friendly natives into enemies, His men then found themselves reduced to sheltering behind a low mud wall, a couple of feet thick, which shrank every time it rained and had to resort to eating rats, mice, snakes, lizards, rawhide boots and their own dead shipmates. Um, So double check in the cannibalism (laughs) box. Oh, no. But
1: You know, if you've got to pick cannibalism, eating the heart of your enemies or eating your friend because you're hungry. Yeah one is better than the other it definitely is yeah so in October
0: 1536 becoming steadily and steadily sicker he sent a small party to explore the Parana and Paraguay rivers and in command like he put it he basically gave his his first lieutenant a guy called Juan de Ayolas. Command of this expedition. He departed with 170 men. You don't need to remember his name, but the guy accompanying (laughs) him was a 31 year old Basque guy named uh, Domingo de Irala, and you do need to remember his name. He would go on to be pretty important. Domingo de Irala. Yeah, Irala. Uh, so Mendoza heard nothing from his party for about three months. He then sent another lieutenant, a guy called Juan Salazar de Espinosa, or I'm just going to just refer to him as Salazar, and 70 accompanying men to look for the first party. And he waited another okay. three months and heard nothing. So he decides, you know what, uh, my, I'm falling apart and becoming rapidly more syphilitic. So uh, he decides to hightail it out of Buenos Aires in April of the following year and would die on the journey back to Spain. Oh, my God. So Aeolus uh, so Aeolus, Adios. Yeah, Aeolus of the thir- of the first party and his crew had followed Cabot's route up the River Paraguay, and mm-hmm. uh, they founded uh, the port of Candelaria in February of that year, okay. and that would develop into the modern city of Fuerte Olímpo. It's a
1: nice name.
0: Yep, yeah. and he left Irala, his lieutenant, behind. This is the guy that I told you to remember his name with a small party of around 30 men and he continued on and we never hear from him again uh he basically disappears oh wow with all of his men so salazar the second party eventually meets up with irala but uh, they couldn't find iolas the first guy so um salazar returns back down river to a place called the bay of Caracara, uh, where he had encountered friendly natives on his way So he's like, I'm going to go back there to where I met those uh, very friendly Guarani. Those people who
1: didn't want to kill me. Yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) While Eral remained where he was uh, to kind of wait for his commander to return, which he never would. Okay. So on August 15th, uh, 1537, Salazar and his men found a new settlement, Nuestra Señora de De la Asunción.
1: Oh, Asunción. Yes. Yes. So that is the modern day
0: capital of Paraguay. Found it on August 15th 1537 as i said
1: the, the, the place names around paraguay are very mary heavy hmm so this is our lady of the assumption there's also yes. a concepcion and a, a pilar which are and, and we, we had candelaria as well those are all names of mary mary of the candles mary of the pillar mary of the conception mary of the assumption yep. they were very very keen on our lady yep. were it, it, these colonists
2: I'm I'm going to throw in a a hypothetical. Is it maybe because a lot of these, you know, while you know they they were uh, Spaniards in the 1500s, so they were pretty darn Catholic. Yeah. Um, they maybe necessarily weren't, w- but they ne- weren't necessarily, you know religious scholars or they weren't you know uh missionaries themselves so they kind of they had some catholic knowledge they they need to mm. call Ma- mary's a pretty big figure in catholicism so they kind of mm-hmm. they went for the kind of the the top tier and they weren't going for saint barnabas of the club foot or whatever you know they weren't going there, yeah. down yeah. the run the runs uh scraping yep. the barrel saint wise that's my hot take <laughs> yeah.
0: i've also noticed for some reason i don't know maybe we'll get on to this later but i've noticed that like um a lot of places in modern-day Paraguay are named after uh, people, people, but with yeah. the title included. So there's places like, like Colonel doctor, and Doctor and things like this. That doctor. like
2: oh, I did see that. Yeah, and
1: President. Yeah. Well, but so like know, there's, there's, a there's a town, a whole province named after an American president. Yes, <laughs> should, I, I will
0: talk should about should that later. That. Actually, that comes up in my next section. But yeah.
1: um. But no, there, there was a town in the Chaco called like Doctor. Pedro P something, yeah. isn't there? It's
0: like it's uh, <laughs> generally if you twitches. name a place after a person, you don't give their title as well. But anyway, uh-huh. um yeah, that's that's. Here's
1: the city of Mister.
0: <laughs> yeah, this this town is called Mister Joseph, uh, like, yeah. Joseph Byrne, like Doctor
1: Joseph Byrne.
2: I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the thing now, and yeah, there's like a mayor, Pablo Lagarenza, mayor in of yep. rivarola yeah. Yep. They, so they, they full name people here. Yeah, it's name it's an and title. Approach,
1: but it makes the maps very busy.
0: So anyway, basically, yeah, Asuncion sits right on the cusp of the Chaco that we described earlier. Mm. Basically, like uh, okay. across the across the river from the Chaco. So he describes it like um, you know the the riverbanks around the area were high enough to protect the town during flooding season. Uh, the natives were friendly and cooperative, and the land was very fertile. So
1: yeah,
0: uh, the natives also told him. That some fierce warriors lived in the chaco across the river but salazar didn't know didn't didn't worry too much about them at this point right okay. the settlement soon began to grow and in november uh, a ship arrived from uh, buenos aires with uh, reinforcements uh, and there had been some squabbling and like um i suppose uncertainty about the the leadership of of this spanish colony uh, in the wake of mendoza's departure and eventual death and Iola's disappearance. So basically the, the, the guy who had been charged with establishing this colony was was dead, although they didn't know that at this time, but also the second in command was also disappeared. So the Spanish king sent uh, what's called a c- cedula, I think, uh, which is essentially a, deal, yeah. a, a kind of royal decree. And I'm going to quote from a book here, the, co- the Colonial History of Paraguay, The Revolt of the Comuneros, 1721 to 1735. That's not the period that we're talking about now, but um, this quote I thought was was quite pertinent. And that's edited by Adalberto Lopez, who I believe is a, a very prominent scholar in this in this region. So he says, uh, if stated the sedula, a successor had been named and was still alive, he was to be the leg- legitimate governor of the province of Rio de la Plata. If, on the other hand, Mendoza's successor was dead or a successor had not been named at all, uh, the survivors of the expedition were to gather peacefully and freely elect in the name of the king, a governor for the province. The Cedula of 1537, which one historian has called the Magna Carta of colonial Paraguay, is unique in the history of the Spanish-American colonies. No other part of Spain's empire in America received the privilege of popular elections. It is strange that a monarch who was so busy centralizing power in Spain and destroying the autonomy that municipalities and other institutions had enjoyed in medieval times should grant such a privilege to conquerors of a region still believed to be rich in precious metals. Also strange is the fact that the cedula did not place a limit on the number of times governors could be elected. During the next two Hmm. centuries, the people of Paraguay were to make use of the cedula, not only to elect new governors when the post was vacant, but to the chagrin of the Spanish crown, also to depose unpopular ones. So essentially, the Spanish king basically just says, pick your own leader. And, you know, so that gives them a a heck of a lot of freedom
1: to kind of go their own way. way.
0: So, uh, in August 1538, the colonists elected Irala, the guy who I told you to remember his name, Oh, yeah. as captain general of the Rio de la Plata. The king, when he heard about this, attempted to send others to take over, but Irala refused to recognize that rule as did the colonists <laughs> and sent no takesy backsies, basically. Um, <laughs> and around, at around the same time, the Spanish formalized their colonies in South America uh, into a collective known as the Viceroyalty of Peru, nominally ruled from Lima. Uh, But Paraguay had proved and would continue to prove that it had a strong independent streak. So Irala's rule set the tone for Paraguay's development for centuries to come. He encouraged his men to take wives among the native population. And he himself had up to 70 concubines and encouraged immigration from other European countries, uh, resulting Uh. in a rapid increase in mestizos. As a direct result, uh, as we talked about earlier, 95% of modern Paraguayans are mestizos. uh, And he concentrated his forces in Asuncion, abandoning Buenos Aires entirely in 1541. Uh, within about 20 years, the new po- the population of the town had grown to 1500, and it had become one of the most important colonies on the continent. Uh, Irala himself died in 1557, uh, but the influence of his people began to spread very quickly, easily dominating the Guarani tribes, which did not band together. By 1580, mm. they controlled almost all the lands along the Parana River from Asuncion to Buenos Aires, and were enjoying a relatively free hand in ruling the territory. However, in 1586, the Jesuit fathers entered Paraguay for the first time, and very quickly became a competing power in the region. So by the beginning of the 17th century, uh, just 14 years after their arrival, about 100,000 of the once polytheistic, semi-nomadic Indians had converted to Christianity and had settled the lands surrounding the missions. So basically, wow. the Jesuits just came in and just began to wholesale convert the Guarani and set up these reducciones, uh, which were basically just small towns uh, where they they sort of kept watch over the Guarani and taught them the ways of of you know European um, civilization and farmed and and taught them you know the the way of God. In addition, uh, a social order known as the Encomendia system. Uh, had involved to allow the offspring of Spaniards and the Guaranese to be Spaniards themselves and therefore be allowed to own slaves. So there was competition between uh, the Jesuits and uh, the Mestizos for, you know, the the Guarani men particularly. And so the the conflicts began to spring up between the two sides. And this tension came to a head during the 1720s and 30s, which saw the revolt of the Comuneros, where Paraguayan settlers rebelled against Jesuit privileges mm. and the government that protected them and culminated in a makeshift army attempting to take over Asuncion, uh, which was repelled, ironically, only with the help of Guarani troops from the Jesuit settlements.
1: So, so they, they kind of banded together into a, a unified community then, the, 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 the block, Jesuits
0: yeah. and the Guarani. Yeah, I mean, essentially you're seeing like the splitting of the, the, the colony here between two power groups, the Jesuits mm. and the Guarani and the Mestizos.
1: Um but it's kind of interesting how how the Guarani sort of bought into the mission.
0: Yeah, I mean it seems, I suppose, like from what I can tell anyway that um they got a lot from the Jesuit missions. Like they, you know, mm. they they flourished there, they were well organized into into productive societies, they were taught to read and write, this kind of thing. So yeah.
1: And and the language was formalized yeah. and, and standardized. Yeah. And in fact I think the word Guarani was invented by the Jesuits mean warrior or something to contrast the kind of converted people yep. to some other word they use for people who remained in the forest okay
0: so this kind of came to a head in the 1750 Treaty of Madrid basically which which changed the borders uh, between the Spanish and Portuguese um, territories in South America and ended up where seven Jesuit missions were um, east of the Uruguay River which was which was one of the new boundaries um mm. and they were told to be dismantled and relocated on the spanish western side of the river and these had more than twenty-five thousand inhabitants and were not particularly inclined to move the jesuits eventually sort of backed down but the guarani did not and this led to a, a conflict known as the guarani war where more than 1500 guaranis were killed in conflict with spanish and portuguese forces who eventually occupied the missions and this is mm-hmm. uh, the basis these events are the basis for the mission which is the film that I talked about earlier, the 1986 uh, British period oh, right. film, which stars Robert De Niro as Captain Rodrigo Mendoza and Jeremy Irons as Father Gabriel, one of the Jesuits. It uh, it won the Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or and the Academy Award for Best Cinematography uh, that year. So uh, I haven't seen it. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but uh, I, I had a look at the trailer and it looks uh, very much like a period piece that was made in 1986. <laughs>
2: Um, I, I, I recall Robert De Niro looks very hot He's, uh, got, a, he's, he's got, got a very uh, like dark shirt or something flowing
0: wig uh, I, I assume it's a wig right. um, it's a Try wig. to make him look more Portuguese I guess But um, right. yeah we, we maybe can insert just a quick clip of the trailer here uh, it's, it's very 80s Tell them they must leave the mission They say it was the will of God That they came out of the jungle and built the mission they don't understand why
2: god has changed his mind you should never have become a priest but i am a priest and they need me if you die with blood on your hands you betray everything we've done
0: if might is right and love has no place
1: in the world this period also makes it a cameo in in voltaire's book candide so it was kind of People were aware of this back home in Europe and had mixed opinions about whether it was good or bad and whether there was something noble about these native people following the priests or if the priests were taking advantage of them or if they were just militarists with cassocks on, you know, it's a whole lot of
2: a lot of views on this on. yeah
0: yeah i mean the, the the spanish crown basically in the wake of this conflict is that like the jesuits are just too powerful i think and they're yeah. they're, they're fermenting
1: they've got it all sewn
0: up yeah they've, they're fermenting an empire within an empire and they're a threat essentially so you know the the conflict eventually was all for naught because um the spanish and the portuguese signed a, a, a treaty 11 years later which basically undid the first one uh and the the you know Spain regain control of the land on which those missions were were built um oh. but yeah it, it as i said it it definitely angered the the crown and so uh, in 1767 charles III of spain ordered the jesuits expelled from the territory and expropriated all of their property uh, Oh wow so <laughs> big move yeah so that basically caused the the guarani their their societies to essentially collapse the within the Reducciónes ah. anyway and um caused them to come into contact with spanish colonial forces directly a lot of in in many cases for the first time and that did not go particularly well so yeah i'd i kind of you know i'll leave it there but um yeah going into the 1800s i guess tensions were quite high between the europeans and the guaraní
1: things take on a bit more of a typical t- complexion yeah
0: so as we mentioned earlier the, the there are ruins of of a couple of these missions which have been designated world heritage site by unesco which are popular tourist destinations today so yeah we'll leave links to those in the show notes if you want to take a look at uh at what some of these places look like but um yeah that's the end of the the jesuit um influence in paraguay though I, I suppose their their influence will live on for much longer than they themselves were physically present but um yeah they 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 are expelled from the country at this point so Yeah, let's take a quick break here, and then we'll come back with um, the beginning of the 1800s. Hey, everyone. Just before you hit that skip forward button, you're not about to hear an ad here. Uh, As seasoned listeners will be aware, we don't do ads on the show, and that's directly because of the wonderful community support we get from our Patreon backers over at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. They are the fuel that powers our balloon, if you will. And we couldn't produce the show without them. A few of our recent backers include Shelley Yu, Marty, Bethany Maids, Sean Drynan, Scott Eisen, Brent Leary, Nathan DeRover, Yogi Bear, John Killeen, Elsie Stoll, Kirsty Fitzsimmons, Catherine Urbanak, John Chris Holm, Tim Lucas, Haley, and Rory Carrington, as well as a few more to come in future episodes. Thanks a million to all of you. And finally, a quick note on our social media pages, especially Instagram, uh, I'm adding some images of the things we talk about there, including the mission sites, which we just mentioned in this episode. So for the more visually minded among you, keep an eye out for that in the season ahead. OK, back to Paraguay.
2: So uh, I'm taking over around 1800 and just give you a kind of a lay of the land After the kind of expulsion of the Jesuits, Paraguay had rather fallen down the the agenda of Spain... Uh, Spain wasn't really paying a lot of attention to the area. It wasn't necessarily, you know, massively economically productive. Uh, and there were certainly, you know, other areas in South America that were more economically productive. So, uh, as I say, not really of that much importance. I think it was actually being run via Peru. But as you said, from that kind of cedula, um, Paraguayans often just kind of claimed, yeah, we'll just do what, I, what we want anyway because exactly. the king said we could. So so they had a bit of kind of an independent streak always. Peru's quite far away. Mm. Exactly. Um, I think this was the same in, in Uruguay as well that it, when Napoleon invaded Spain in 1808 and captured the Spanish king Spain kind of stopped as a going concern and effective administration mm-hmm. kind of of the colonies also stopped uh, and Buenos Aires um basically decided they weren't going to recognize Napoleon's brother, who he uh, marched onto the throne uh, and deposed the Spanish viceroy on May the 25th of 1810, saying that they would rule in the name of the deposed king. So, you know, claiming to be, you know, we're, we're keeping the fight going with the real king, but actually kind of they're sort of claiming independence in that way as a result. So, Buenos Aires was kind of the seat of Spanish power in the area, and they chose a guy called José Espinola y Peña as their spokesman in Paraguay. Now, Espinola has been described uh, by a historian called uh, John Hoyt Williams as perhaps the most hated Paraguayan of his era. <laughs> uh, well, why was this? Uh, well, he was closely linked to the ex-governor, a guy called uh, Lazaro de Rivera, who had shot hundreds of Paraguayans uh, un- until he was forced from office in 1805. So th- this guy was nice. like uh, the the kind of... Cody of this guy who was just massacring his own people and they sent him in as their their representative uh it was a bad move I gotta say uh so um, Espinola uh, fled back to Buenos Aires and lied about the extent of support in Paraguay uh, for uh, Buenos Aires generally. And Buenos Aires kind of sent some troops in thinking we, we will be greeted as liberators uh, under under General Belgrano uh, to uh, subdue Asunción. Uh, Paraguay won these battles easily. And the next step is, is a bit counter counterintuitive. Because they had won so easily, the the Paraguayan powerful people were then quite worried actually about the power of the the, the soldiers so they thought the oh. soldiers then posed a direct threat to them um, and the Paraguayan governor Bernardo de Velasco uh, he sent most of the soldiers home without paying them uh, took their weapons away and just kind of dispersed the army uh, so they weren't paid after eight months of service um, that's going to engender good feelings it's gonna rankle yeah so velasco mm. had also been a part of these battles and had fled the battlefield uh, at uh, Poragari, which is a specific uh, battle uh, thinking the argentinians were going to win so he he, he fled uh, <laughs> very cowardly um and then the last straw was he asked for military support from the portuguese against argentina and paraguay mm. were like look you're 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 taking the piss, guy. We're gonna we're gonna have to depose you, I'm afraid. So there was a, there was a big uh big revolt and uh, independence uh was declared on the May the seventeenth of eighteen eleven. Now Paraguay was is it, sorry, go on. is that
1: very early for independence in South America? It,
2: it is very early. I think is that like
1: pre Bolivar?
2: Uh, I think so. Yeah. They, did, they didn't need no stinking Bolivar. They were just doing their own thing. Wow. Uh, and Bolivar was mainly up in the north, I think, as well. He was more like yes, Colombia yeah. and so on. Um, anyway, so um, just to, again, give it a, a lay of the land, very high illiteracy, very low education. Um, nobody in Paraguay really had that much experience of you know governance or running a country, for that matter. Um, the uh, the Indians, the Guarani, um, were treated pretty terribly in this period. Uh, well, I, I read... Uh, the phrasing of like slaves or, or children um, and as I say uh, you know it, it's a bit awkward because um, they're surrounded by uh, the pretty aggressive Chaco tribes they, they you know, were pretty aggressive at this point uh, so yeah a bad way to start a new country so I'm going to talk about uh, this guy who I've, I've used this phrase before I would regard this guy as Mr. Paraguay and mm. this is the person who is the reason that there is a Paraguay uh, his name is José Gaspar Rodríguez de Francia born in 1766 uh, he became a chair of theology at the seminary of San Carlos in Asunción in 1790 uh, but was booted for uh, unspecified extreme views of some kind uh, so he he left the seminary to study law he read a lot of uh, Voltaire Rousseau uh, read a lot of the kind of uh, French uh, revolutionary writers um, Francia had the largest library in Asunción he knew astronomy french and some regarded him as a wizard he was basically the kind of a, a local that's smart that's person that's <laughs> As a wizard, as a wizard, yeah, he, wow. he knew like foreign languages magician. and yeah, he, he, he knew he, he knew stuff. He knows he w- too he was much. The, the knowiest interesting
1: guy. Definition of wizard, but
2: yeah, uh... yeah, stuff nowhere. Uh, so as a lawyer, he became a social activist, defended the less fortunate against the affluent, uh, became head of the Asuncion Cabildo or council. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that um, his father was uh, mixed race. And at that time, head mm. of the council was the kind of the highest office he could aspire to, and he, that rankled with a bit with him, as as we'll see. Um, it, by eighteen o nine, yeah, so he he was head of the council, um, and after independence, he became a member of the ruling uh, junta, uh, and he was the only guy with diplomatic, financial, administrative skills. You know, he, he was he was basically running the country. Um, Outwitted Argentinian diplomats in the negotiations that produced the Treaty of October 11th, 1811, in which Argentina recognized Paraguayan independence in return for vague promises of a military alliance. Um, So he was proving very clearly that he he was the guy. Uh, And to underline this, uh, he resigned. And went to a modest country house just outside the city to complain about how uh, the, the the revolution and their independence was being betrayed. Uh, you know, the, the will of the people was being subverted, etc. Uh, to anybody who would, who would come mm. to his uh, house for an audience, which was which was many people. Um, and then they the junta learned that the Argentinians were coming back with the idea of, maybe we should just absorb Paraguay. Seems like a good idea to Argentina. And then they uh, panicked because they realized, we're too stupid to deal with this. Uh, We need Francia. (laughs) We need a wizard Um, on our side. (laughs) We need a wizard, exactly. Uh, We need a hero. Uh, So on November 1812, the Junta members invited Francia back to take charge of foreign policy. They also agreed to give him half of the army, half of the available munitions, and... um, You know, from here on, he's basically the guy. Uh, The envoy arrived and he was told everything would have to wait until the meeting of a Paraguayan congress four months later. Um, They quickly redeclared independence and expelled two of the junta members with uh, Argentine sympathy. So they kind of consolidated power while they were buying time. Uh, The congress was perhaps the first of its kind in Latin America. More than 1,100 delegates chosen by universal male suffrage and many represented the poor rural Paraguayan majority, which is a trend we're going to see for for Francie in the future. The Congress gave overwhelming support to Francia's anti-imperialist foreign policy. The delegates rejected a proposal for Paraguayan attendance at a constitutional congress at Buenos Aires and established a Paraguayan republic, the first in Spanish America, with Francia as first consul. Francia was supposed to trade places every four months uh, with the second consul Fulgencio mm. Yegros, but that never happened. <laughs> yeah, so uh, from here on, uh, he is El Supremo Dictador. Mm. So just some, just some, some, quick, some quick hits of his rule. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a dictatorship. It was repressive. There was zero free speech. Um, but he was ruling actually pretty much in the interests of the common Paraguayans. Um, arrests without charge, disappearing people without trial. He had a torture chamber called the Chamber of Truth. Ooh. Really Ooh. terrifyingly, a wizard with yeah. a chamber. The, the, the,
1: the unpublished eighth Harry Potter book.
0: Yeah, we're we're running dangerously <laughs> close to Harry Potter
2: jokes here. But uh. <laughs> uh, I was I was thinking more the Ministry of Truth and someone mm. responsible for propaganda. Um, I mentioned about Francia's father being mixed race. And the prejudice he encountered as a result. So as a result, he forbade Europeans from marrying other Europeans, uh, forcing the elite to choose spouses from among the local population. So he he outlawed same race marriage in that. Context. Wow. Yeah. He's like um, the
1: opposite of a, of a Jim Crow, I suppose. Yeah.
2: And that, that 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 was my comment about being almost too progressive. <laughs> uh, you but, must uh, marry but, outside you know, of your class, essentially. Yeah. Wow. It, it, it is interesting. Yeah. It's interesting.
1: Um, is is this the point I should mention that 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 screenshot I sent you from Wikipedia a, a, a while back? Yeah. yeah. So the the, the was a, the, the quote was it? Francis had a very liberal view of sexuality. He made marriage subject to high taxation and um, restrictions, and insisted on personally officiating over all weddings. So that's um, oh, yeah. interesting. He kept a ledger of all the women he slept with, and despite having no close relationships, he had seven illegitimate children. Uh, the oldest, uh, Ubalda García de Canete, he caught um, outside his palace uh, prostituting herself. So his response to this, like any good father, was to declare prostitution an honourable profession and that all prostitutes should wear golden hair combs in a manner uh, that fashionable Spanish ladies were doing at the time. Wow.
2: Um, I mean, I... I... I kind of think it's cool. It's an like, approach. It's, it's it's pretty. It's pretty supportive. I'm not sure I'd I'd have the Co Jones to do that, but uh, yeah. But uh, you know, um, it's it's pretty do, again progressive. Pretty ahead of time, yeah. supportive of sex workers. Yeah. There. Um, yeah, but it was more to like
1: insult posh people.
2: A lot of his rule was about that. Uh, and it again, i like, What will
1: okay annoy the, the, the libs? What'll annoy the... <laughs> the
0: elites. What will annoy the 1%? Own, own some the libs. The Spaniards. What will annoy the Spaniards? Yeah. yeah. In 1820
2: and uh, in 1821, he, he basically does two purges. The first kind of triggered by a, an attempt to assassinate him. 200 prominent Paraguayans are good and purged that time. And in 1821, it's another 300 uh, peninsulares, as they're called, people born in Spain. Um, or you know, from from Spanish stock, to, they brought them to Asuncion's uh, main square, where he accused them of treason, had them arrested, and led them off to jail for eighteen months. Um, in that case, he got them to pay a, a massive annuity, uh, basically covering the state's budget for that year, um, and uh, that kind wow. of broke their financial stranglehold on society. Okay. And took all their money, basically. I mean, when you said purges,
0: <laughs> I assumed he was going to kill these people.
2: The first two hundred, he 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 he. he Kill purged Right the, the, the next 300 He kind of Economically purged Okay Um. He just kind of Took him down A couple of notches In Spanish yep. In yeah, Paraguayan society You one percenters
0: um, Are going to join The 99%
2: and, That's it Yeah uh, We're all 99% now Baby Yeah uh, So Francia was also Very against the church uh, He banned religious orders Closed the country's Holy seminary Secularized monks And priests By forcing them to Swear loyalty to the, to the state Which I'm sure they loved uh, abolished the privilege of clerical immunity from civil courts, uh, confiscated their property, and uh, subordinated church finances to state control. So basically, you know, the church is neutered as a force. Mm. Um, there was also a, a rather unpleasant bit about the kind of the state acquiring a thousand slaves in terms of the property that they were taking from the rich. Uh, but, um, and it, I think it led in the short term to actually there being more slaves, although I think the idea was for there to be less, but it it kind of uh, rebounded slightly. Overall, the poor did very well. Uh, There's lots of money being taken from the elites, and that meant less money being taken from them to cover the costs of the state and and, the church as well. Par- Paraguay was doing pretty well compared to its neighbours uh, had a decently sized army with 2,000 regulars uh, criminal penalties were mainly working on state projects and Paraguay was known for giving asylum to political refugees again very kind of uh, controversialist for the day um, and when Francia died as he eventually would he left the state treasury with at least twice as much money uh, in it as when he took office uh, including several oh. years of his own salary he, he didn't take salary for many of those years he kept it uh, independent he introduced new industries like textiles and shipbuilding um, and he quickly recognised Brazilian independence in 1821, making him a good friend of, of Brazil, which was enough to deter Argentina from, you know, looking mm. uh, with its sticky fingers uh, in the way mm. of, of Paraguay. So he was very, very clever. Um, and he, I think he, what was he, he, um, he did trade a little bit, but mainly for guns. Uh, that, was, that was all he really wanted was just, just some guns, please. Uh, guns, please. Um, Paraguayans believed uh, whatever the problem was, whatever was happening... El supremo uh, Dictador would fix it, um, and I kind of thought that this was kind of the opposite of teach a man to fish. Fish, uh, this is you know teach a man to be totally Depending dependent on, on one you. person. Uh, yeah, kind, kind, kind of get 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 them addicted to your presence, yep. basically. Just yeah, rely you know, on the totally wizard; on he'll never die. Exactly. Like. <laughs> Um, and
1: so i assume they went back to democracy then immediately after the death of uh
2: no way baby <laughs> they they love dictators now um so uh december 20th 1840 francia dies um and as i say he you know he had left no successor but not only that mm. like he, he he had kind of left this massive gaping hole in, in paraguayan life uh there's a new junta tries to take control but that doesn't work there's some coups and chaos until the following year uh when congress chooses a guy called carlos antonio lopez as first consul so uh, we got a new dictator um he so he did not free slaves instead he enacted the 1842 law of the free womb which ended the slave trade and guaranteed that the children of slaves would be free at age 25 but the new law served only to increase the slave population and depress slave prices as slave birth rates soared. So again, uh, they were trying to sort out this, this issue of slavery, but um, it, they, were, they were really struggling. They were with entrenched it in it, and, yeah. Yeah, unintended consequences, I think.
0: I suppose just to mention very briefly that like in 1842, the, the flag was adopted it's i believe one of the world's oldest national flags um so you you will you hmm. will have seen it in your podcast player probably but uh if you're not familiar it's a it's a red white and blue tri-band uh so okay you know that your standard flag colors i guess red on the top white on in the middle and blue on the bottom um okay. it's apparently inspired by the french tricolor isn't
1: that those is not that the flag of like isn't that a Dutch flag?
0: Well, that, that's a, that. The only thing that makes it different is that uh to you know a lot of other flags, I guess, is that uh, it has this seal in the middle on the white stripe. And right. interestingly, it is the only national flag in the world which has different emblems on each side. So oh. on the mm-hmm. front of the flag is the country's coat of arms, and on the back is the treasury seal. Oh, in okay. a way, like yeah, it's it's very very sort of simple, basic. I, th- I think the. The main sin, if I if I can call it that, like the the main flag sin flag, this paw. flag yeah, uh, f- flag yeah. pie, yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, but this flag uh, commits is that it has writing on it, which you know I think is yeah, not you're not supposed to have really yeah. writing on your flag, and it's if, particularly if you need small. to write the
1: name of your country on your flag, then you haven't done a good enough job yeah, designing it. It's a bad,
0: it's a bad flag. That's I think that's Roman Mars. Uh, that quote comes from, but yeah, I I think it's very interesting that it has. Different uh, sides, but aside from that, it's it's not a particularly exciting flag. Flags out of ten, Luke.
2: Four, I guess. Four. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, So, that's 1842. On 1844, uh, the Congress names Lopez President of the Republic, and that's supposed he's going to hold until his death in 1862. So, Lopez himself, he was born in 1787, and in contrast to Francia, who was apparently a a very skinny man, uh, Lopez was, uh, this is not a judgment, but he was obese, apparently, uh, and a quotation I have here is, he was a great tidal wave of human flesh. Um, Jesus and while Francia was 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 this kind of interesting wizard guy, uh, and and rather unusual as far as dictators go and that he, he he basically was there for the poor um and everything he did bad he was pretty much just doing it too badly to 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 the former ruling class lopez is more your run-of-the-mill dictator uh use the state to enrich him and his family and maintain his legacy and that's that's kind of it really uh, lopez uh, set about becoming the wealthiest so-and-so in paraguay uh despite this uh paraguay continue to do uh, pretty well under uh el excellentissimo uh that excellentissimo excellent uh, who is the most excellent one uh, which was what he called himself um wow paraguay's population increased from two hundred and twenty thousand in 1840 to almost double that to four hundred thousand in 1860 wow um, you get 20 years ways te- that's amazing
0: 20 years yeah it's,
2: it is it is enormous yeah uh, But also he he kind of, he opens up Paraguay a bit. So you start to get highways, telegraph system. And the the Brits came in and built a railroad in 1858. It's pretty Um, excellent. Also, education expanded massively. Uh, when Lopez took office, Asuncion only had one primary school. And during his reign, more than 400 schools, schools were built for 25,000 primary students. Um, and the state reinstituted secondary education, which I guess <laughs> was gone under Francia for some reason. So uh, Lopez sent his son, uh, Francisco Solano, to Europe to buy more guns. Uh, and foreign experts started oh, coming hey. in to help build iron factories and a large armory. Um he also uh, took measures is what it says in my notes to reduce the threat to settle Paraguayans from the marauding Indian tribes that still roam the Chaco, uh, which I assume is a rather uh, killy kind of taking measures. Um, Lopez also feared an attack by the Buenos Aires dictator, uh, Rosas, and Lopez had kind of dropped this isolationist uh, foreign policy that uh, that Francia had um, and he began directly meddling in Argentine politics under the slogan of independence or death. Lopez declared war against uh, Rosas in 1845 to support an unsuccessful rebellion in an Argentine border province of Corrientes. So he is really making people pretty angry <laughs> in his area <laughs> and Paraguay is much smaller than Argentina. Um so, uh, yeah, Rosas quickly established an embargo on Paraguayan goods, um, but Rosas did fall in 1852. Uh, Lopez then signed a treaty with Buenos Aires, recognising Paraguay's independence, but uh, eh, note, noteworthy, Argentina never ratified that, um, and this this... Slightly more proactive foreign policy meant that Paraguay was no longer a kind of a, a useful buffer uh, between you know larger South American countries, or you know previous to that it was between you know, kind of you know, Spanish powers and, and Portuguese powers, um, and it was really becoming a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, and I'm going to stop talking now because I think uh, I think Luke's going to tell us uh, um, what people did to this this country that was quickly becoming a pain in their ass. <laughs>
0: So the the next section we're going to get to is one of the most significant periods in Paraguay's history. It's the um, thing. It's the, the big it's thing. It's the thing. Coming. Yeah. Yeah, I think you touched on it a little bit, Mark, but uh, Lopez had attempted to modernize Paraguay and had, had done so with, you know, a lot of military projects, trying to de- develop the nation internally, but also kind of protect and... and uh, to defend Paraguay's borders and its independence in, you know, what was a hotly contested region in the late 1850s. A number of small but significant military engagements forced Paraguay to stand down a number of times, uh, strengthening his desire to bolster the nation's military capabilities. But he knew based on these previous campaigns that Paraguay couldn't really withstand a major military conflict and so urged his son, who succeeded him in 1862, to settle disputes through negotiation rather than through war.
1: And, of course, that's what he did. Let that (laughs)
0: go. Well, so here we have uh, Francisco Solano López Carrillo. Solano López, as we'll refer to him, was about 35 when he took over from his father and is an extremely controversial Mm -hmm. figure. Some have portrayed him, and again, Mark, you'll touch on this later, as a champion of the rights of small nations, while many many others see him as an overly <laughs> ambitious dictator um, uh who let's say fl- flew a little bit close to the sun for, for the
1: listeners
2: um, my hand is very high up right now well like, i think mark in our Uruguay <laughs> episode
1: just mentioned uh like called just said paraguay's leader was a maniac at the time uh, yeah we were talking about this period of history so yep. your cards are on the table <laughs> I also want,
0: before we start, actually, I wanted to point out there's also a, a strong Irish connection. And mm-hmm. I think you you uh, turned me on to this, Joe.
1: Well, this is why I proposed this episode, I think. All okay,
0: right. wow. Well, yeah, um, Solano Lopez went to France on a diplomatic mission uh, before he came to power in Paraguay uh, in 1853, where he developed a fascination with Napoleon and sure. all things Napoleonic. Easily done. And during his 18 months in Europe, he met a young woman from Cork. Uh, the daughter of a naval family. Uh, Her name was Eliza Lynch, and her family had fled uh, the famine to France. And although she was already married to a French officer who was stationed abroad, I think in Algeria, she sort of very quickly had a, a whirlwind romance with Solano Lopez and returned to Paraguay with him Eventually, bearing him six children. Now, I don't know yeah. what her oh boy. her husband thought about that. Oh but, no! Um,
1: uh, so I, I read a little bit on her, Luke, and basically they they were completely estranged. Like at sixteen, she yeah. married this this soldier. Um, he had not gotten permission from his his officers to get married. Right. She, she went with him to North Africa for a bit, and it didn't agree with her. So she went home to her family. Hmm. Fell in with um, Napoleon's. Cousin or, or or niece? Uh
0: niece, I think. Yeah,
1: niece. M- Matilda, yeah. um, and became a courtesan mm. at the uh, at the Paris court. So she started, you know, having um,
2: learning about Toilies influential
1: and relationships, right. uh, and ending with the future future leader of a of a distant exotic nation. So yeah, but like she she was just from Charleville and Cork. Like she, she was just mm. quite a normal. Obviously, middle class enough to be able to flee to Paris from the famine in Ireland, but which uh, not everybody uh, was able to do. No, but she's a really like I, I've seen her described as like the Evita of the nineteenth century. So, you know,
0: without he, the possibly without the kind of downtrodden like working class background. Well, um, I mean,
1: she wasn't. Uh, she wasn't. She a wasn't a landowner. Like she. True. She was a fairly ordinary person, uh, and obviously, it goes to show that the. Paraguayan lack of obsession with proper marriages is still in full swing. No one really seemed to care about oh, yeah. Madame Lynch or La Lynch. She was known being just sort of the concubine of the president. That was that was fine.
0: I, I've 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 read kind of like theories that she was coercing him or mm. or you know almost whispering in his ear during yeah. uh, what's the comedy
2: Macbeth esque. Yeah, that, yeah, that
1: and whole pushing thing. his ambition, but also. Mm she i think she wrote a book later on sort of claiming she never really had any any interest not no interest in politics but like she was no a political thinker she didn't have a plan. Yeah. uh so she was demonized by those who wanted to and she's been made a kind of national heroine by others in much the same way as Eva Braun would be later a kind of a, a symbol yeah. of of um a mother of the nation kind of character so take your pick yeah there's
0: there's there's a lot of I mean, again, we'll touch on it later, but the, the, this war is obviously still like a big, you big know, scar on Paraguay. It's a big scar on the nation. It's still debated today. There's a lot of conspiracy theories around it, which I'm not going to get into. Yeah. Um, and having but, a woman
1: to blame is
2: always good if you are of a certain mindset. We as men can all agree on that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Who should but blame anyway, let's get into know? it. Um, so Uruguay, our old friend Uruguay, was in a very weak position after Lopez came to power. Due to a bunch of internal strife, which mm-hmm. you will have heard about if you've listened to our Uruguay episode. And looks set to be engulfed in a civil war in 1863. Mm-hmm. Uruguayan General uh, Venacio Flores, uh, who I think you talked about in that episode, Mark, was then an officer in the Argentine army and was the leader of the Colorado Party of Uruguay and launched a coup slash invasion with the intention of overthrowing the Blanco Party, who were in power, with the backing of Argentina.
1: Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah.
0: The Blancos who were in power were allied with Paraguay and Lopez immediately sent a note to the government of Argentina uh, and Argentina basically threw its hand up and said, hey listen we don't have anything to do with this which um, <laughs> was, crazy, very, right? was very handy for them yeah <laughs> really the all you need to know about the the origins of this conflict is that Brazil and, and Argentina were sort of throwing their weight around uh, mm. on the continent at this time because they were the two largest powers So Uruguay is somewhat getting kind of shoved into into a corner here by by these two larger powers. Uh, and lopez decides i'm gonna you know i'm gonna come to the aid of the smaller power here because i could be next you know my country could could very well be next to be crushed between these two much larger forces uh so he inserts himself and his military into this conflict on the uruguayan side declaring war on brazil on the 13th of december 1864
1: brazil is really big
0: brazil is huge um as is Argentina now Argentina at this point was still out of the conflict but yeah, yeah he, he declares war in Brazil in, in December 1864 as I said um, uh, the Colorados however unfortunately for him would win out in Uruguay and take power uh, therefore allying them with Argentina and given that Argentina was a long time rival of Brazil however Lopez had hoped for Argentine support but Argentina refused his request to transit troops through their territory and so he declared war on Argentina too in the following year. Oh,
1: what are
0: you doing? Uh, yeah. I know. Uh, so then the puppet Uruguayan government signs the Treaty of the Triple Alliance with Brazil and Argentina, basically committing the three largest parties in this neighborhood to war against tiny little Paraguay. Oh no! Uh, now what? It wasn't quite as as small in terms of territory at this time, but it was it was certainly not a not a large power. Um, <sighs> so. This is the other name by which this conflict is known as the War of the Triple Alliance. Um, it's also known as the Paraguayan War. Mm-hmm. Just to give you some stats up top, uh, and they're horrifying. It is the largest international armed conflict that has occurred in South America with the highest number of casualties. Uh, wow. There are varying okay. estimates of, of how many people were killed in this conflict. I've seen anything from like 300,000 up to a million. Oh boy. But we're talking, you know, several hundreds of thousands of people at the, at the minimum.
1: And what's the population of Paraguay at this point?
0: Around half a million people lived in Paraguay at that time. But amazingly, at the beginning of the war, the military forces of Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay were actually smaller than Paraguay's. Because Solano Lopez had and his father had spent years building up the military, but Brazil's navy uh, was one of the decisive factors in in this conflict. So Paraguayan troops initially invaded the Brazilian territory of Mato Grosso, scoring a number of early victories, and later did push into Argentina oh, after oh declaring war man. on them. What are you doing? <laughs> but uh, the pivotal battle came on. On the 11th of June, 1865, when the navies of Paraguay and Brazil faced off at the Battle of Riachuelo, uh, the Triple Alliance gained control of the waters off the Rio de la Plata Basin and the entrance to Paraguay, basically cutting it off, right. as, we, as we've as we already discussed, it's a landlocked country, so if it doesn't control the route to the coast, mm-hmm. then, you know, it can effectively be blockaded. By the end of 1865, the Triple Alliance was on the offensive, uh, its army had swelled since the start of the conflict, and they invaded Paraguay proper in April of that year. Lopez launched a major offensive in May 1866, resulting in the bloodiest battle in Latin American history, the Battle of Toyoti, which resulted in casualties of 12,000 uh, for Paraguay versus 6,000 for the Triple Alliance oh in just one day.
1: That's so many people.
0: Yep. Particularly at this time when you're not talking about particularly modern weapons and modern tactics and that sort of thing. In September that year, then Lopez uh, invited the Argentine president to a conference to try to come to peace talks but no agreement could be reached i i believe that the issue was that um argentina had signed this pact with the other two nations and sort of said there's nothing except for an entire sort of surrender and dismantling of the paraguayan government would satisfy Fair the way. terms of the treaty which obviously yeah. lopez was never going to do after that point the war slowed down for a little while but paraguay was never able to regain the upper hand and Lopez continued to fight on as casualties mounted. Suncion was occupied in the, on the 1st of January, 1869, and uh, looting of the city began shortly thereafter. And the final phase of the war was known as the Campaign of the Hills, which was basically a guerrilla resistance in the oh, mountains wait. that lasted for more than a year. And at this point, he was Lopez was directing the war from afar, but obviously, you know, was telling his troops that surrender was not an option. And to fight on to the very last man, uh, he actually, according to one source I read, uh, ordered his officers to kill any of their colleagues, including other officers really who familiar even spoke about surrendering.
1: Well, I read that he, um, he he ordered the execution of like I think it was four hundred people, like including his siblings and hmm. confidants, often having them um, lanced instead that. of shot to save on ammunition. <sighs> so like the. The wars were closing in and... Again, very
2: familiar. Yeah. i just going to say after, after Königsberg and so on. Yeah. Familiar. Familiar
0: things. So on March 1st, 1870, Brazilian troops finally caught up with Lopez and shot him dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his final words were supposedly, I die with my homeland, which one source I read very grimly put it, and it was no exaggeration.
1: Yeah. So, uh, no, apparently he, his, um, his colleagues or his... Partisans insist he said, I die for my homeland, but, um, you know, your version's better. Mm. And I just wanted to, to mention, like, again, that bit about Eliza Lynch that I read. Yeah, um, She was apparently in the vicinity when he was killed. I don't think she was there, but they came for his son, who was a 15-year-old at this point. I think her, her sixth child had been born in, like in a camp following the war and that died of disease or okay. something. So things weren't going well for um i mean Madame Lynch, yeah. or anyone yeah. in paraguay anyone at all but yeah. uh, his his 15-year-old son had been made a colonel in the army and when the the brazilians came in order to surrender he was like a, he insisted a paraguayan colonel does not surrender so they just shot him in front <sighs> of his mother Boy. and uh, her her retort was you know is this the civilization you promised to bring us uh, kind of with mm. the bitterness of a you know Somebody just watched her. Somebody shot. Apparently, there's yep. a, b- a big claim as you know. These are uncivilized people, and we'll, you know, whatever. We'll civilize them if we win this war. But she, yep. uh, grimly, the description I read is that she buried both her her husband, her her yeah. um, her husband, husband and her son. But, you know, um, yeah. But Lopez and, and his his son, uh, with her bare hands in the dirt, before they arrested her and sent her into exile. So wow, and she just would die in obscurity in paris like she she had a, f- a brief period living in buenos aires and she wrote that book but she um yeah she never really retained returned any degree of power or influence yeah. very
0: curious figure though i mm-hmm. mean there's 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 a, a bunch of books have been written about her and i think a movie as well was made about her life as knock well knock yourselves out read, so. listeners yes. so yeah now we come to it which is the 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 kind of aftermath of the war uh, which, as I mentioned, the country is really still dealing with today to, to a large extent. But um, f- figures vary. Obviously, you know, um, this is like one hundred and fifty years ago, so like it's it's hard to to kind of sure. you know be certain about exact exactly figures, particularly in on this scale. But um, a lot of figures uh, report that up to ninety percent of the country's male population, or close to half of the total population, oh. uh, died in this conflict. Wow. Now some people have have disputed that, that those figures but even if they're half of that that's still a, a huge impact on on any on any country. Paraguay was forced to cede 40 percent of its its claimed pre-war territories to Brazil and Argentina. Stephen Pinker who's a, a rather famous uh, author, wrote that assuming just a death rate of over 60 percent of the paraguayan population this war was proportionally one of the most destructive in modern times for any nation state in the world so the cessation of territory remained a big dispute for a number of years after the war and there was sort of political wrangling between the different sides and finally in 1877 u.s president rutherford b hayes was asked to step in and arbitrate this uh, dispute and he found in favor of paraguay securing what now constitutes over half of the national territory. And there's a department, which I think we mentioned in the Uruguay mm. episode as well. President it's like Hayes a state department. Yeah. So departments are like states uh, basically. But yeah, there's a, it's a, a president day de Hayes department, as you mentioned, Joe, which is sort of a, an area of the country that uh, is still named after him today.
1: I, I don't know if there's anywhere in the U S named after it, other for B Hayes. Yeah. He's not, a, he's not, he's
0: not on Mount Rushmore. So
1: I, I think there is some discussion about whether the the death toll in this war had an impact on, like, the language um, demographics of Paraguay. Because mm. with, with Interesting. All the yeah. men dead. Um, a lot more of society would have been left to women who were often of, you know, as we said, most of the population is of some kind of mixed-race background. And so Guarani was quite widely spoken. But um, potentially this... Played a part in in keeping it
2: going, tip the scales, yeah. Uh, but there, but if you think about mm, like the education levels, you know anybody who's been to a university probably a man in enemy, the army kind of or in the yeah. you know uh, in the in, army or exactly. engaging yeah, with international yeah. diplomacy with other Spanish.
1: Spanish-speaking countries. So it, it almost certainly had some impact, but it did also like it went both ways. It like, you know, Guarani had been used in the army, so people wouldn't understand their orders. Hmm. And it was kind of after yeah. the war became a bit seen as a, a, a thing holding back modernization by by the governments that were to come, which you know there's this is ebb and flow of whether granny is a source of national pride or a backward, um, uncivilized throwback, which uh, again I don't know to me feels a bit echoey of Ireland, um, and any colonized you know any colonized place has that kind of battle between do you want to be proud of your Indigenous culture, or do you want to be like the people who are colonizing you?
0: Yeah, um, and I—I I mean, there's all kinds of impacts. Like, um there's a couple of articles which I'll link to in our show notes. One from the Economist, which I sent to you guys, another one from the Guardian, uh, as which is kind of dealing with the upcoming 150th anniversary of this conflict. But um, talk, both of them talk about like kind of the 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 ongoing impact that this conflict has had. Um, like there's massive inequality in land ownership, which mm. is still an issue today. Uh, and there's there's also like a, a a big gender imbalance I suppose there was a big gender imbalance in the war as you mentioned Joe not not only in terms of sort of languages and stuff but you know men were in such a small minority that they you know that it was oftentimes very very hard for women to find men to marry mm-hmm. uh, for example and and
1: that... again marriage became less important the, the, the yeah, we saw some number of the statistics on illegitimate children went through the roof in this era because yeah you know uh, yeah well because men are uh, you know pe- are, uh, the majority of women in the country were probably looking for a man and there weren't enough so
0: yeah i just want to finish off here with a quote from a guy called uh, thomas l wickham uh, this his book uh, on the paraguayan war is i think almost 600 pages long and is available uh for free through the library of congress so i didn't read the whole thing but um i just want to want to uh, finish off with a quote here from from him. So he says, uh, "Lopez's decision to invade Brazil and Argentina was based on heart pride, the decision to rectify borders, and the fear that Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro were moving dangerously close to realizing their national goals in the region. If the Argentinians and Brazilians had their, had, had their way, they would soon eliminate all regional rivals, his own country included." They would then divide paraguay and the banda oriental between them historians have reproached lopez for his many miscalculations but his intuition on this equation was correct the brazilians did harbor hegemonic ambitions on the plata and given these inclinations the marshal thought it wiser to attack without delay using his army to smash his enemies before they smashed him afterward he could re-establish a balance of power while guaranteeing the security of his nation Seen in this light, the Paraguayan offensive of 1864 to 1865 was less the product of one man's wild ambition than a traditional, broadly felt, fear of encirclement. Yeah. So that kind of runs counter a little bit to the to some of the prevailing views about this conflict. But I just thought it was interesting that like there are so many different takes on, you know, was he you know a, uh, a a maniac i think as you as you mm. said earlier uh mark uh, you know or or, or a, a
1: reasonably concerned small uh, country lead, yeah. a reasonably concerned leader of a small country between two massive powers I, I- can be I, both. I, I, I think you um, can be a little bit of
2: both because I, I think that some of the the earlier yeah. moves are rational, and that I'm a small country. I need to make friends with other small countries because lots of big countries. So that's the way we're going to stick together. Uh, you know, hang together, hang separately, kind of thing. Uh, and then he he mm. in the middle of a war, with Brazil declares war in Argentina, which is more than yeah, mad. It does man, yeah. feel yeah. a bit fine. like
1: Belgium invading Germany and France at the same Very time. Very much so.
0: Yeah. So, Joe, you want to tell, tell us a little bit more about the aftermath of of the conflict and and how the country moved forward from there.
1: Yes. Uh, messily. Um, mm. So I'm not, I just can't give you blow by blow accounts of what happens for the next couple of decades because, uh, sure. you know, the country have been rent asunder, have been completely devastated. And we're still in a patriarchal society where the leaders are going to be men. So that there's various figures arising who were either... Lopez loyalists, or had gone into exile because of their opposition to Lopez. There was a group called like the, the Legions, some kind of legion, um, that hung out in Argentina and fought on behalf of the Argentinians, but were Paraguayan. They were also involved in the re-establishment of politics in, in Paraguay after the war, um, but it was very chaotic. Uh, there'd be twenty-one governments in the next thirty years, so. I'm not listing you 21 names I can barely pronounce. <laughs> um, but I would quickly like to mention before I get into the, the the two evolving political power blocks, just two really strange colonies that were set up. So the, the, the context is that there was a desire for immigration into Paraguay after this because the population was so low uh, and in particular male immigrants and the preference was for people from, uh, I'll use air quotes, white countries. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> There was kind of a, a political shift among the people who were coming to power that, it would be nice if this place was more like other Spanish colonies and less, less Paraguayan. So you know a lot of Italians and Germans and Spanish would come. People from Brazil and from neighboring Argentina would also uh, come. But there were a few less obvious um, people. In eighteen eighty seven. I've seen them described as utopians, but uh, their utopia is different from your your utopia or my utopia. They they set up a place called Nueva Germania, um, and it was founded by Elizabeth Nietzsche,
2: and I think to sister Friedrich? of, uh, yes, yeah, sister of Friedrich, right? Okay, and
1: her husband Bernhard Förster. They were German nationalists. Um, oh dear! In in yep. Yeah. And they wanted to set up a model community in the new world to demonstrate the supremacy of the German oh. race. Far from the influence of Förster's of, uh, hated Jews, oh. who we thought were the reason the Prussian Empire was collapsing back home. <sighs>
2: okay.
1: So um, this was, a, this was a, a utopia of sorts for, for, the, for the racist. A club um, for jerks. Shockingly, the uh, the settlement of 14 impoverished Saxon families who, who came with uh, Förster and Nietzsche on this adventure didn't go great. Um, Good. You know, there were things like they, they were all infested with some bugs that, you know, the granny knew how to get rid of, but they didn't want to get advice from you know, Untermensch. Bugs are attracted um, to supremacy, I've so, heard.
2: They're, they're sniffing at the supremacy yeah. in them as well it was.
1: Yeah, they, they didn't do great. And um Furster would eventually kill himself by injecting himself with strychnine boy, I think, oh boy. in a Oof. in a hotel in um, San Bernardino, which you can still pass by the room where he did that if you're into that kind of thing.
0: Uh, wow. it is What a grisly that, tourist attraction. That Ye. um
1: Mangula, the the angel of death mm. from, oh, geez. from concentration camps, yep. did indeed visit. So Uh, Oh, yeah. He's the kind of clientele I can. okay Yeah. Yeah. So that 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 community still exists to some extent, but uh, it didn't do very well on a different, but not that different um, front. In 1892, William Lane, who was a a sort of a labor activist from Australia. This is going to be better, isn't it? I hear you say Mm. Uh, he set up the the new Australia movement and they they wanted to make a socialist utopian colony in in paraguay and they they did they set up some communities so they were going to be teetotal, communist and also racist which why? is a, wow a good structure why did you society. have to add
2: on that last bit yeah <laughs> he was definitely the
1: view the biggest challenge they had was the people who were there already wow uh, and maybe paraguay would be better on that front so they you know, haven't
0: been through enough I can, i can imagine if you're just a, a paraguayan and at this point, being like, you know, ninety percent of our men are dead, and now all these jerks are trying to move here. Oh, like, just leave us alone, please. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Ultimately, tens of thousands uh, of, of people would would um, arrive here in, towards the end of the nineteenth century from from mostly mm. Europe, and would mostly not be awful in quite the same way as as those two examples. Okay. Uh, to the extent that there is nothing remarkable, I could find to say about them, which is that's good. good. Yeah. Um, so, two major political blocks. Formed in the aftermath of the war. Both sides, as I say, contained contained some Lopez loyalists, some oppositions. There wasn't really an ideological core to either group. It was just you're in this group or you're in that group, and you could swap between them, and there were factions within the groups. But. Britannica, the article on Paraguay, phrased it this way, when the occupying armies were removed from Paraguay, it left Paraguay with a crowd of politicians noted for their corruption and ambition. So, good stuff. Uh, you you mentioned in the last section, Luke, that Uruguay had a, a Colorado and a Blanco party, and the Blanco yep. party were also known as the Liberal party. So these, these mm-hmm. colour-based party names were, were fashionable at the time. And Paraguay followed suit. So the, the National Republican Association was set up, which became known as the colorado party that kind of coalesced a few different political clubs and factions that have been you know meeting and discussing their ideas
2: welcome to our club for jerks
1: uh and the <laughs> liberal party was also found i think the liberal party might have been founded first and sort of spurred the colorado leaning people to formalise oh, right. their alliance they were both found in 1887 uh, and became the two leading strands of politics if you want to call them that the Colorados would be in the ascendancy for about 30 years. In the 1890s, uh, the reconstruction of the country was underway. There was a general political amnesty, which meant there was actually a parliament with an opposition and stuff, which is nice. The university was founded, and I think at this stage we have things like telegraphs and railways and, and so on coming into, uh, coming into their own. Uh, the population was about 330,000 in the 1890s, so this was growing with, with immigration. They claimed to admire Fran- Francia, uh, who you might remember from earlier. Oh, yeah. Set up the kind of the populist state socialist thing. But the Colorados, despite claiming to admire Francia, basically set about dismantling everything he built, selling off public <laughs> utilities to pay for their many, many, many debts.
2: Again, very familiar. He's yeah. So familiar. Uh,
1: and often to foreign interests. Oh. So the Liberals had originally advocated land sales as well. Um good politicians as they were once they saw how massively unpopular they were they switched their opinion and started saying this was terrible we're with the people on this we never wanted land sales um, showing the, wow. the the kind of integrity of the political ideology that that, that was behind these two parties uh, luke you mentioned earlier that there is massive uh, inequality in paraguay even to this day a lot of that stems from from this period when 79 people ended up owning half of the land in Paraguay by 1900 oh yeah oh god so through these sell-offs both to foreign uh, to foreign settlers foreign capital and also just to Colorados who were supporters of the Caballero government uh, they profited massively and peasant farmers were often pushed off land they'd been on for generations uh, often to emigrate which seems ironic when the goal was to keep the population growing oh god so, you know, people were just being yeah, turned I think, out of the
0: country. I, th- I think, as I mentioned, like the, the land ownership thing is still an issue today. I think yeah, it's,
1: it's it's never been resolved properly.
0: Yeah, I think it's 5% of landowners own like 90% of the land is the figure yeah. I have here. So it's, yeah. Uh, anyway, in
1: 1904, there was a thing called the Liberal Revolt happened. It kind of started as a, a popular revolution. Arguably, it was led by General Benigo Ferreira, who was a longtime enemy of General Eguzquiza, Uh, he invaded from Argentina in a way that sounds familiar. A bit of a war, the Colorados were defeated and at the Pact of Pilcamayo handed power over to the Liberals who would themselves then rule for the next 30 years. So a complete shift in in which ill-defined political bloc was in power. Um, Very quickly, the Liberal era devolved into political instability as well in fighting civil unrest Mm -hmm. there would be another 21 governments in the next 36 years to the best of my knowledge only one president did his four year term without being ousted by a military event wow Um, to the extent that it was remarkable and you know it was worth noting in Mm. in the articles about this Uh, there was a full on civil war in 1922-23 between liberal factions supporting ex-president Gondra who I think is the guy who did four years uninterrupted and uh, President Scherer with Gondra, the Gondristas, winning. And during this time, the Hacendados, people who owned large haciendas of land, they were basically feudal lords over the countryside. Um, so things are going in the right direction then. Yeah, <laughs>
2: Paraguay par- par- is a city of progress. Sorry, the car- great, car- t- of progress. great
1: Depression comes along, things get worse. He, I just came across this today. It's kind of something I, I knew about a bit, but it's... Having read about New Germania this this obviously came to light that the, the first Nazi party outside Germany was set up in nineteen twenty seven in Paraguay. So, like there was, was it some... that early.
2: I thought it was like somewhere somewhere in the thirties, really twenty seven. Yeah, that is nuts. Uh
1: you know oh, yeah. there were some descendants of a Nietzschean utopia dream living here. So I'm not like I'm not saying that it was a big party, right? But. Yeah, this, this is a thing that is a thing. Um, and I also, when reading an article about that, uh, came across this notion that Förster's writings were part of um, the ideological foundation of of uh, what Hitler later called Nazism. So, right. allegedly, he, he sent wow. um, soil from Germany to cover Förster's grave, the, the founder of new uh, uh, Germania, and a tombstone oh that read the place where the father of nazism lies which i think is still there so
0: wow that's
1: something that may have happened uh it's a book called the forgotten fatherland by british historian ben mcintyre that might go into that in more detail anyway a different thing uh so sort of moving away from nazis for a while uh let's do that let's move away from the nazis we mentioned earlier how bolivia had access to i uh, used to have a pacific coastline lost it in the 1880s chile mm. sure and there had always been disputes about the boundaries, the, the exact boundaries of the Chaco between Bolivia, Argentina and Paraguay. Um, but basically over over the early 20th century, Bolivia kept sending settlers or colonists or military little encampments into the Chaco to kind of see where they could push their luck to. Right. And ultimately they wanted to have access to the Parana River to be able to sail down to the sea. So... Through the 20s, there were armed clashes. Uh, Paraguay tried to build up its military. There was a a suspicious killing in 1927 of a Paraguayan lieutenant, Adolfo Rojas Silva. And there were airstrikes, skirmishes and lots of little bitty wars. But the neighboring countries tried to keep the peace and mediate Mm. and encourage these two countries not to blast each other into smithereens. In 1932, however, um, after both countries had a time to import lots of arms, which I think was the main thing holding them back, Great. Bolivia stormed a, a Paraguayan fort, or the 14, I hear them called, like little, little forts, uh, and this began what's called the Chaco War. So it's the bloodiest interstate war in South America of the 20th century. Oh, my Not. God. Really? So, okay. Of all time. <laughs> Set and records. Who's left? Again. There's nobody
2: left, Paraguay?
1: Yep. Uh, yeah. Yes, so Paraguay was smaller and weaker, but it did triumph, ultimately. They had a few things in their favor, like their officers, a lot of them had volunteered for the French in World War One, so they kind of had experience. Oh, okay. They used local Guarani knowledge of how to live off the land and navigate the forests in the Chaco, uh, while most of the Bolivian army were... Conscripts like Quechua conscripts and other indigenous group conscripts from the high Andes who when brought down to this kind of humid um, low altitude place were very much out of their comfort zone and not really oh, right. sure why they should be killing people over it. Right. Um, in that way, conscripts so often aren't keen on your mad wars. And um, also Paraguay went all in. Like they mobilized the entire state into war. Okay. okay. And importantly, I suppose the, the president, Eusebio um, Ayala, gave carte blanche to General Jose Estigariba to basically do whatever he wanted. So they went full on into driving the Bolivians back. Uh, and eventually, foreign mediation led to a ceasefire on June 12, 1935, and a peace treaty that gave Paraguay three quarters of the, the Chaco region that had been under dispute. All right. so 100,000 were dead mostly from disease actually um, Okay. and it was a massive economic disaster for everyone involved so great, doesn't sound familiar go. at all and then just one last um, point uh, I mentioned in the foreshadowing at the start there was a significant group of German speakers or low German speakers living in Paraguay who were not who you would expect
0: not Nazis okay. D- I
1: decidedly hope. not Nazis yes great, um, okay not, yeah. not even from That's Germany. Start. They arrived in the 20s and 30s as as, as colonists to set up farmsteads. And they were the Russian Mennonites. Um, Russian the, Mennonites? Yes, mm. these were groups who moved from the Low Countries and Switzerland, which is where Anabaptists and Mennonites and Amish kind of started off. They were being persecuted uh, for their unusual take on Christianity. Sure. And they found welcome in Prussia and Königsberg and that, that sort of okay. part of the world yeah. and along the Volga as well. And so Russia changed.
2: Oh, it did, yeah.
1: And uh, they didn't feel as welcome there anymore. So people a lot, a lot of them would have uh, emigrated to Canada and there's lots of men in like, communities in Canada and in, in mm. the USA as well from this this migration of... Low German speaking, Russian origin Mennonites. So they're they're a bit less hardcore than the Amish. Like they're quite traditional and and mm. simple, but not you know they'll use technology, um, much more readily than the sort of stereotypical Lancaster County, mm. uh, Amish communities, which are more famous. I think because they're more extreme. They would have emigrated out via Canada or directly from the USSR. Uh, and set up the communities of Neuland, Fernheim, Menno and Philadelphia, all of which are in Boccalone okay. uh, department, I think. So, yeah, they, they're a big part of um, Chaco society, which is a surprise. So that they're still around and um, they speak German and they, they seem more pleasant than some of the other German speakers we've met so far. So I'd like to give them Des- a bit of a shout Decidedly so. Actually. Yes. Cool. Oh, and, and then there's a piece of music I thought we might put in here, which is a polka written in Guarani by Emiliano Fernandez about the Chaco War and performed by okay. Ramon Vargas Colman. So it's called Great. the Regimento Tres de Tuyuti. And I think Tuyuti is a place you mentioned earlier, so I think the regiment was named after a battle in the Paraguay yep. War. The, the, the big turning point in
0: the in the Paragraph war yeah
2: mm-hmm
0: all right um so
2: mark you're gonna bring us up
0: to sort of more modern day stuff at this point right
2: yeah um so after the chaco war um, thousands of soldiers were sent home and under not great circumstances, they were generally pretty PO'd uh, as to kind of how the war had gone. They felt that they had won it kind of in spite of the government. Uh, often they hadn't been well supplied, uh, armed with machetes, etc. Right. Um Also... Um, the government refused to fund their pensions. Uh, so there's lots of disabled war veterans uh, as a result of the war, and the government wasn't giving them their, their due money. Um, and at the same time as this, they were giving uh, S. D. Garibia, who is the kind of, you know, fated hero of the of, of the battle, 1,500 gold pesos a year. So um, there's a guy called Colonel Franco. Uh, he was back on active duty since 1932. He became a focus for nationalist rebels. Um but Franco was then exiled for criticising uh, Ayala, who's the president at the time. Uh-huh. And in 1936, uh, several units of the army descended on the presidential palace and forced Ayala to resign, ending 32 years of liberal rule. So the liberals are now out. Wow. So
1: And that, that, that's all it took. Uh, yeah. It's always the colonels. Colonels always lead coups. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Colonels will win coups Um, So um, Partido Revolucionario Febrerista Which is the kind of The the new political group That kind of sparked up Around this time uh, They're known as the Febreristas They uh, brought Colonel Franco Back from exile in Argentina To be the new president Uh, And the Franco government uh, Showed it was serious About social justice By introducing a right to strike An eight hour workday uh, a requisition of 200,000 hectares of land uh, distributing that to 10,000 peasant families okay, you trying, to, re- trying to, to resolve that, that whole Ex- exactly and so so that's going to be a positive thing as well it's going to appeal to appeal to the base as they say mm-hmm. you communist um, <laughs> <laughs> um, also Franco declared Former ruler Solano Lopez uh, So from from the from the Paraguay War He declared him a national hero Sin ejemplar As in without precedent uh, Because wow. he had stood up to foreign threats So this is the beginning of that process That we talked about Where wow. he's now getting Geography. rehabbed uh, Yeah, yeah. He, He's now becoming the kind of uh, He's now becoming Mr. Mister Paraguay really um, But uh, this is because he stood up to And I quote foreign threats So he, he sent a team to Um was it Cerro Cora or Cerro Cora? Uh, yeah, that's where the unmarked. final battle happened. Yeah. Um,
1: where where, where uh, Solano Lopez was killed.
2: Where Lynch, yeah. so Lynch buried him, right? Yeah. He, he mm-hmm. sent a team up uh, up there basically to uh, dig him up and uh, stick him in a fancy new chapel called the National Pantheon of Heroes. Oh, my. Um, and uh, also later erected a monument to him on Asuncion's highest hill. So right. All, all in on the all symbolism in. there. Um, Franco... Um, thinking about his name and thinking about the time period that we're in uh started to kind of go a bit mussolini-ish and he started doing a lot of speeches from balconies um and was viewed to be kind of like a a, a mussolini copycat in these kinds of ways um and so is that just something
1: you have to do if you're a military figure called franco is that just in a, in well, a somewhat spanish-speaking country you just it's kind of yeah. it's the 30s <laughs>
2: it, it's, it's not a very original act yeah as was the style at the time. Um yeah. so he he then published a very fascisty law called um <laughs> decree law number one hundred and fifty two promising a totalitarian transformation. Oh, no. Uh protests erupted, as you might expect. Now his his main block, the Federalistas, were not a like really strong block so to speak mm. they weren't really consolidated not very coherent um and they fractured very easily uh, franco's cabinet included socialists fascist sympathizers nationalists colorados and liberal civicos so it was a you know a dog's dinner so there's a new party turns up called the revolutionary national union the union nacional Revolucionaria. They were founded in November in 1936, um, and although the new party called for representative democracy, rights for presence and workers, and socialization of key industries, it failed to do the trick and failed to broaden Franco's political base. In the well, end, this, this was his new party. I, I I don't know if he was necessarily mainly pulling the strings. It, 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 you know, the idea was that it would kind of draw a ring around his support okay. and kind of add to his support base. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He just he felt like he needed a group whose job was there to support him rather than, you know, these five other ten other groups that, that had become his kind of base, that the base he'd inherited. Um, so, um, yeah, it didn't work uh, in short. And in the end, Franco uh, dared not expropriate uh, the properties of mainly Argentine landowners and the liberals, mm. who still had support in the army, agitated constantly for his overthrow. Uh, Franco ordered Paraguayan troops to abandon the advanced positions in the Chaco that they had won in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the army revolted in 1937 and returned the liberals to power. So he was, you know, he was a bit fascisty. People didn't like that. He tried to kind of build his own support, didn't work. And eventually he kind of, he, he messed with the legacy of the Chaco War, which was what it did for him. Yeah. So there was a peace treaty with Bolivia that was signed in 1938 fixing the final boundaries between the Paraguayan battle lines uh, in 39, the Liberals picked a guy called S. D. Garibia this is the general from the Chaco War oh he's back he's back uh, and he is uh, he, was, he had been serving as the special envoy to the United States so he'd been getting kind of political experience um And they they, they bring him in Esti Garibia circumvented the liberals In the National Assembly who opposed him And assumed temporary dictatorial Powers in February 1940 Um, It's always temporary I'm
1: hearing inverted
2: commas around the word Temporary Mark It's okay, it's okay He promised the dictatorship would end as soon as a workable constitution Was written That's what they always say Girls Um, and boys
0: don't listen to people when they tell you They're going to end their dictatorial powers themselves (laughs) We've learned. We've learned by now. It's just not going to happen.
2: They, they, they'll never change. Um, yeah. So, um, Esteban began a landform program again. Balanced the budget as well and drew up plans for highways, public works, you know, telegraph, whatever, whatever you, whatever you like. Um, so his new constitution was officially adopted in August and it remained in force until 1967. So the document mm. really lasts. So he's he's setting himself up here for the long haul and the constitution calls for a strong but not despotic president um and a new state empowered to deal directly with social and economic problems um so sorry but- could you imagine putting that in, in writing it's like no we need it's strong but like not dictatory we just
1: put that in the in the constitution <laughs>
2: yeah. um i mean i guess they kind of needed to um and it you know as we'll see it didn't work um, mm-hmm. so he he greatly expanded the power of the executive branch with this constitution so he's he, you know as i say he's setting himself he, he's he's making a chair for his own butt to sit in this is very very clear um, and it kind of clearly legitimized open dictatorship because it meant a power to, give to the executive Garibia, he's here for a long time
1: all right strap in
2: one month later, Escudero dies in a plane crash, September oh, 1940. Geez. He so, barely, he barely what? got in. He's dead. He was died he in the assassinated plane crash. or something? No, just they have, they have really crappy planes. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the forties. A lot of people die yeah, in the forties. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. what I read because I was suspicious about that as well. Um, I think after Panama, I think we we're all very suspicious about such things. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Apparently, he was just doing like a, a tour of the country with his wife, just kind of you know. Literally getting the lay of the land, um, doing doing some pressing to the flesh, and yeah, it's it playing plain flying out of the sky. Nice. He's gone. save <laughs> anyway, the Forget about him. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no okay. <laughs> His successor as president is a guy called uh, Higinio Morinigo, uh, and he was the war minister at the time. Uh, he quickly banned both the Febreristas and the Liberals, and clamped down drastically on free speech and individual liberties. Um, and he was uh, so like it's 1940, so we're we're in we're in World War Two. World territory, War II, you know? yeah. Uh, he he is very pro Axis. Uh, he's a big fan of Germany. Um, so at the same time, though, he he benefited from a lot of exports going to the U.S. And he actually, I think, he got some U.S. aid as well. So I don't really know how that worked, but I think the U.S. was just kind of keen to make sure that the Germans were trying to really win him over. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But he was also like, just so you know, I do love Hitler, but I will take your money. It <laughs> was basically the deal. And I I read today that um, the chief of police's child, he had, he had a new a new child, and he called him Adolfo Hirohito. To oh, jeez, support, support for <laughs> the, I, I the Axis So
1: that he he also encourages cadets to wear swastikas on their yes,
2: own. they were they were wearing yes. the swastika. Wow, um, so. yeah. yeah. I really was... didn't think there'd be this much, this much Nazism in, in Paraguay. Yep. So, um, the Allied victory, uh, convinced Morinigo to liberalize his regime a little bit, just a little bit. But in 1947, revolutionaries and a coalition of febristas, liberals, and communists, <laughs> uh, overthrow him good and proper. They, they were crushed then in turn by the Colorados, uh, who were just kind of hanging around, uh, like a bad smell in Paraguayan politics uh they they came back and uh they, they helped out, been out the game
1: for 50 years now
2: they, they've always been there it's just that they've been kind of dormant um mm. and they 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 decide to kind of resurrect themselves and come to mornigo's aid there was a lot of fighting but uh, the fighting eliminated all parties except for the colorados uh, and a group of nice. colorado military officers mean, eventually removed mornigo from office do you mean the shooty shooty so, bang bang fighting or just like you know I think I think I think there was I think there was actually yeah sorry 1947 okay. I, I read was actually referred to as as the Paraguayan Civil War so oh, I think we both had okay. civil wars that were not quite but yeah. were also civil wars um, the, the the army I think split down to kind of
1: I always wonder uh, how the army picks sides like if if your if your officers decide they like one party is that just kind of where you are now
2: or i think so yeah i mean i, I remember seeing a video back in back in ukraine you know a couple of, a couple of years ago and it was literally just kind of uh, ahead of a unit kind of giving a speech to his soldiers he was kind of trying to convince them to go one way or the other um and similarly i think the navy went for the liberals and started shelling asuncion but there was a an artillery regimen which had gone the other way it was shooting back at the navy so it was you know it was pretty, it was a civil war, like it was yep. it was pretty serious. There's um, a lot but, to be said um, for elections and
1: peaceful transfer of power.
2: So, uh, as I say, Colorado's now in power. Uh, there's a, a moderate guy called Chavez, but forget about him, he's not hanging out long. Let's move quickly on to Litun- Lieutenant Colonel Strussner. Uh, Strussner this is the, is the name. Yeah, so he doesn't, he doesn't he sound particularly Paraguayan.
1: Of, uh... Of German extraction, and yeah, I think, his two parents are German. I think that German. did make people suspicious of him during this era.
2: Oh, and rightly, rightly so, frankly. Um, but uh, yeah, his two parents were 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 actually from Germany, not just mm. you know, like he, yeah, he, was, very, he was born there. I, yeah, I think so. Lieutenant yeah. um, uh, Colonel Strusner led a coup against the established leadership, and in fifty four, the uh, Colorados reluctantly nominated Strusner as president, beginning an unparalleled period of stability in paraguayan politics known as the Stronato. uh Strustner ruled as dictator and stayed in power for nearly 35 years so wow, wow. it seems to be kind of 30 year cycles you get in paraguay and mm-hmm. this this guy gets his own one basically so during his first days in office he declares a state of siege which he just kind of re-ups every 60 days <laughs> as required by the constitution so he just has total power and the constitution kind of mandates it again it's it's, it's that kind of the constitution was pretty despotic <laughs> so wait, a, he you know, he
0: renewed the state of siege every 60 days for the next 35 years is that what you're yeah. saying wow yeah, yeah. just okay just got
2: to get at the stamp i, can, know, <laughs> I can imagine the guy
0: me. who had the who had the running appointment to go and get that you know piece of paper stamped or whatever it was just like uh yeah here so again is
1: everything back to normal oh no it's no. still very stressful no. yeah <laughs> 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 um, who's besieging and- us
2: the, the air yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention so, so just a couple of things. Uh, recently, weirdly, I was listening to a totally separate uh, podcast, uh, a, a crime, I know, to, to not just listen to 80 Days again and again, but I, I'm i weak, forgive me. Uh, but it was, um, I think it was Radio Lab, and they were doing a bit about um, the US Constitution, did a whole series on that, and they had a whole thing about. Um, uh, Strussner's regime and oh. basically just how awful it was and how, you know, lots of secret police and lots of beatings of young men uh, that were suspected to be in any way not loyal to Strussner and it was very much the kind of, if you've heard about, you know, Augusto Pinochet's regime or, you know, um, uh, the 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 other juntas around South America in the kind of 60s, 70s and 80s, mm. it, it's very much that kind of stuff. You know, lots of, Secret police and people getting beaten to death, and yeah, just a lot of yeah, exactly that, a lot of disappeared people. Um, But um, (laughs) yeah, uh, people disappear easily in Paraguay. It turns out Uh, Joseph Mengele, you mentioned him, Uh, Joe. Yeah. So I, 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 Mengele is just one of the you know it's it's one of those names you know, Um, and I I know that he was involved in the experimentation, but I also just kind of assume that you know. He died in 1951
1: or maybe Mossad got him at at Nuremberg
2: or something. Maybe Um, Nuremberg. Yeah. Maybe a couple of years later. Um, But I I remember the boys from Brazil, that movie that Gregory Peck plays, plays Mengele then. Um, So I guess I kind of thought maybe he had escaped. He died in 1979. Um, No one ever got him. They didn't get him. They, okay. they were looking for him for a long, long time. And uh, at one point, so he 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 moves to Argentina and he, he, was, he was knocking around Europe for a good few years, including working as a farmhand in Germany, apparently. And he, he makes his way to Buenos Aires. Um, but eventually um, he felt there was a little bit of heat. He was just noticing that he had a couple of interactions with the government. Mm, started to get a little bit, a little scared about that. And in 1959, moved to Paraguay. Um, because he had he had been kind of going back and forth to Paraguay on business meetings so um, and also I think he was pretty well known I think Strussner was was pretty aware who Joseph Mengele was and what mm. he was doing in his state so uh, and you know M- Mengele was not not the only one he's just you know probably the most famous one mm. um, and Mossad did try and get him uh, they just just failed they just didn't get him uh, They got Eichmann but uh, didn't, get, didn't get Mengele anyway so yeah, he's 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 not a not a very nice man. He did so of he lived there until until
0: 1979. That's where he died in Paraguay. So I no, think, yeah.
2: I I think he, he died went, in Brazil. Brazil. But, but some people ah.
1: say he died in San Bernardino in he, Paraguay. The, so
2: the, the the Wikipedia article says he, he died of a heart attack while having a little swim. Ah. So he had a you know <clears throat> a, almost a peaceful death. Wow. Anyway, yeah. So. Look, uh, Strassner, uh, very brutal, very autocratic, uh, very much linked in with the kind of the pinochets and so on. Uh, very good friend of the US, very anti-communist. So, again, all, all of those beats, all of those boxes ticked. Um, uh, so Paraguay becomes much more attractive, safer for international and domestic companies. Um, we have the Itaipu Dam, um, which is this massive dam project on the border with Brazil, it provides... Lots and lots of jobs, lots of lots of clean energy. You know, quite nice, I guess, in, in that respect. Um, mm-hmm. And to this day, it's either the first or second largest hydropower plant in the world. Wow. Um, the Cold War, as I say, was kind of going on so that the, the U.S. were good chums with Strassner. Um, gave him kind of a free hand in that way, as long as he was able to keep Paraguay free of communist influence, which he did yep. with, let's say, Gusto. Mm. And in 1987, Strassner announces that the state of siege would finally be lifted. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, the enemies Gotham are no longer at the gates. <laughs> well, I, th- yeah, indeed. I, I, I do think it was he was kind of seeing the writing on the wall that, you know, Ooh, Russia's kind of winding down. Ooh, I'm going to be a bit isolated. The U.S. isn't going to care anymore. Uh, and yeah. I guess he didn't want his head in a stick, you know. Yeah. Um, so government officials announced following the 1988 election that Strussner had received 89% of the vote, uh, winning his eighth consecutive term as president. Wow, pop- well done.
0: his approval ratings, what's been
2: through the roof. That's amazing. Uh, um, but his rivals were now somewhat free to voice dissent and uh, they cited widespread fraud, um, probably correctly. Really? Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, yes, indeed. Indeed. Okay. So uh Str- Strussner's long tar- long term um uh, adversary was uh, General Andres Rodriguez led a coup that brought an end to the Stranado in February nineteen eighty nine. Oh um, is it the coups? Uh but <laughs> a, a general, general though, no, 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 though. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, I'll give you that. my um, <laughs> kind of ranking coup. But okay, I'm I'm gonna kind of take a half step back here because the nineties are just A dog's dinner There's There's standoffs I think the president Has to flee To the US At one point A vice president Gets murdered Uh, There's 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 Like a lot of Little bitty stuff But there's no There's no rhyme or reason To it to be honest guys It's just uh, It's general (laughs) Political chaos I think we can kind of We can We can give it That comfortable headline I feel like General political
0: chaos Covers most of what Has happened in this country (laughs) Since the Paraguayan war To be honest Like Yeah
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. I mean, Paraguay, it, it's not the most stable of countries in many respects. But, mm. you know, if w- what South American um, country is these days, frankly. Uruguay. Uruguay was lovely. Okay, Uruguay's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah God, we
0: should move to Uruguay, guys. Yeah. In terms of um, the economy, modern day, they're highly dependent on agricultural products in sort of recent years the economy has grown as a result of agricultural exports particularly soybeans apparently i did
2: read about the soybeans yeah. yeah
0: and hydroelectric power as you talk about mark still plays a big role in the economy as well but the country has very few mineral resources and political instability and corruption have presented challenges to growing the economy over the past couple of decades i think so uh, agriculture represents around 30 percent of gdp and That's as I a mentioned lot. earlier, around five percent of landowners own about ninety percent of the land. I just looked That's up the figures. A lot. Yeah, I just looked up the figures for GDP per capita. The IMF, I believe, puts it around four thousand nine hundred dollars, putting it at number ninety-two internationally, in around okay. the likes of Colombia, Tonga, South Africa, and our old friend Georgia. So yeah, right. okay, yeah,
1: but I suspect it's quite poorly distributed. I would I would, would imagine so. Yes,
0: yeah. Yeah. All right. So th- those figures are, yeah, probably somewhat skewed because of those sort of elite classes of landowners, who I, th- mm. I think many of whom are not ex- even Paraguayan residents. I think a lot of them are, are Brazilian farmers, as far as I'm, yeah, I understand. or Argentine. Or Argentinian farmers. So
1: I, I was I was yeah. looking briefly at the demographics, and they, um, about 4% of the population are Afro-Paraguayan. So as you mentioned, it was a brief period in like the 1500s, 1600s, where there was... You know, African people were brought in as slave labor, and mm, yeah. they would have descendants still, yep. but it's, it's it's a very small, it's a, a couple of communities, um, basically, right. are, are of, of of that ancestry. Uh, but ninety five percent people are of um mixed indigenous white heritage, Mestizo. as we keep saying. Yeah, and about one to two percent of people are indigenous, so really not that many at all. But I also refer to some like um. East Asian people, like people from Hong Kong or Kanawa, Korea, hmm. having significant, like, decent numbers, and that seems to wow. be a lot to do with, them um, in that, the last day, there's a lot of trade with China, uh, ah. sort of being, like oh. electronics and stuff.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I mean, saw something about uh, they're they're like the 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 counterfeit hub of South America, <laughs> counterfeit goods. Yeah, th-
2: so. th- th- there's also, I mean, it's it's also a well-worn path for. Japan. i mean i i, I live mm. in japan and i mean japanese people don't really emigrate in the way that other countries do it's you know b- b- you don't leave japan pretty much as the mm. rhythm. but except um, for business well indeed but um the section exceptions to that are, are argentina and brazil there there are actually significant uh, japanese expat communities there and mm. i wonder if maybe some of that is also going to spill over from them into paraguay as well mm. Potentially,
1: very very well could be and just uh, again on on the demographics thing that there are actually still a few hundred uncontacted people. I think the Iorio people. Oh, wow. Um, who are still living wow. a, an indigenous um, hunter-gatherer life in the forests of the Chaco. Wow. So they're apparently the That's only amazing. non-Amazonian uncontacted tribes in South America and they're under severe threat from deforestation and cattle farming as well as now more recently some oil prospecting. There has been some oil discovered in parts of the Chaco, which is problematic to yeah. maintaining a Uh-oh. a pre-contact way of life. So, I mean, there's some groups who have like minimal contact; like they're aware of um, yeah, yeah, the Mennonites in the neighbourhood, but they're not interested. Um, and there are some people like I think there was one tribe who were contacted, and half the group decided to join modern civilization, and the other half are like, "No, we're good. We're going back to." um going back to our way of life thank you very much wow right uh so that was a bit of a surprise because as 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 that says like you usually think of that just being deep in the rainforest but um it's the same kind of story where logging and and heavy cattle agriculture are a problem there's a I watched a great video that we should link to uh, like interviewing people in the chaco about indigenous lifestyle and like people kind of lamenting how their kids don't know about the medicinal herbs that they know about, and some of them are, you know, getting wiped out by changes in, in the environment, and you know that what I said earlier about the, the the tensions between say Mennonite farmers who provided work, but also, are not, the way that things used to be done. Yeah, it's um, it's worth watching. There's no real conclusion to it. It's just the way things are.
2: Um, Can I talk sports? Yeah, yeah, do you
0: want to talk about sports?
2: Briefly, uh, there's there's not not lots of sports here. It's out of so lots and lots of football. Uh, they won the, the Olympic silver medal for football in 2004 at the uh, Athens Olympics, mm. um, which is, you know, g- good going. Um, there's also a thing called the Trans Chaco Rally, a three-day yes. motor rally. I think maybe did you put that in, Joe?
1: Yeah, I, I found that. Every September there's a three-day like dirt road motor
2: rally, which sounds really cool, unique. Uh, but uh, Paraguay got to the quarterfinals of the uh, FIFA World Cup uh, in 2010, which was that wasn't Brazil. It was 2010.
0: 2010 was South Africa, I think, wasn't oh, it? Oh, South
2: Africa! Yes, of mm. course, South Africa. Mm. Um, and they the got Vuvuzelas. to the finals. The Vuvuzelas, Uh the the 2011 Copa America they got to the final of that um, but were runners up and just one player because uh, you know again there's lots of South American players playing in, in Europe um, couldn't find lots of Paraguayans but uh, one I did recall was Rocky Santa Cruz uh, who, who played him. in quite a few English teams yeah he played at Man yeah. City played at Blackburn um, he was at Real Betis in Malaga as well uh, so he he was a bit of a bit of a journeyman but uh, yeah he was he, he was a good player a player you may have heard of. Um, and uh, food. There was loads on food. Um, yeah,
1: I, I, again, I think it's part of the fact that there's still some of the Guarani culture maintained in the mainstream culture. I Means right. you got all these interesting food stuffs that maybe don't feature when everyone's of Spanish descent.
2: Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of these are like very distinct i mean the, the the yerba mate thing is also a thing in paraguay but and argentina yeah and argentina, but it, when i saw it uh talked about it here it was mainly kind of brewed with cold water mm-hmm. and i think it, do you have it with like a little lime juice and so on as well and you use the kind of the metal tea straw to drink from underneath where the bombia the bombia yeah uh, it's it, yeah so it, it's a whole it's a whole production but they seem to do it a little bit differently here mm-hmm. uh, or at least kind of t- to the normal just put some hot water on it kind of thing there's a thing called bori bori, which is a, a chicken soup made with a thick broth. Um, and it's got bacon fat, rich tomatoes, uh, vegetables like carrots and parsley, flecks of salty queso paraguayo, so Paraguayan cheese and lots that of parsley. Nice. There's a pira caldo, which is a hearty fish soup first devised after the... the... <laughs> Actually, it just says first devised after the war that's not helpful uh for paraguay <laughs> no i, 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 I Which guess war? the paraguayan war i guess yeah. um but it's a thought to enhance sexual prowess uh mm. but made with local river fish um, that, i mean that, if you if you if, you're, if you get Canada. down to it fish yeah. fish
0: soup is not exactly what i would what i would be choosing to to, to indulge <laughs> shall, it, but maybe maybe I'm giving we, too ignore much away, it yeah. dinners
2: and procreate instead yeah uh, yes let's shall <laughs> um, and, uh,
1: Keveve sounds interesting which is semi-sweet dish sits somewhere between a main course and a dessert made from a juicy type of pumpkin bound together with corn flour, Paraguayan cheese milk and sugar it has a creamy texture and is served lukewarm that's right. just difficult to achieve uh, that sounds, well, sounds alright
2: creamy it's, pumpkin it sounds like a tasty goop I, I'd eat that cheesy, yeah. salty, sweet and goop and
1: there seems be a lot of goopiness in, in the things like a lot of corn flour a lot of, <laughs> yeah know. Yeah, so uh, definitely an interesting yeah. place, but mm. a lot more chaotic than its neighbors. Yeah. A lot more chaotic than its neighbor we've talked about before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um,
0: it's it's likely we'll never get to Brazil or Argentina, at least in their entirety. So They're, no. they're too big. Um, yeah, yeah, too big. So if you want to learn more about the podcast, you can find more at our website, 80dayspodcast.com. You can also find more uh, about Paraguay in the show notes, uh, which should be available in your podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard uh, over the course of this episode, you can leave us a review on Apple podcasts helps more people to find the podcast. And that helps us. Uh, You can also support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, or just uh, follow the link in the aforementioned show notes. You can find us on social media, just search 80 days podcasts uh, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We would love to hear from you. And if you want to send us a direct email, with any comments or indeed criticisms, uh, you can email us at eightydayspodcast oh, no. at gmail.com. Be careful with yeah. your criticisms, folks. They're coming for you, I'll, Mark.
2: I'll, I'll come at you with my razor blade. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh yeah, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode. So um yeah, thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll see you guys next time.
1: Bye. I forgot to say
0: bye. <laughs> Goodbye, also for-
1: <laughs>